Andros here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. Here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about an imaginary portrait of Dean Arbus. <laughs> Acting! Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm Brian Connolly, and also the host. We are your hosts this month in Kidmania. <laughs> we are suffering. You've heard of Listomania, probably. Once uh, that was used to, it ravaged Europe. But now, Kidmania is the problem. It's uh, it's not even a problem. It's a it's like it's uh, it's it's you you find yourself in a state of silent expectation and euphoria. Oh man. Uh, I'm going to blow your mind, but I actually was going to mention Listomania while we talked about this episode. So it's, it's good you already brought it up. I'll bring it up later. Oh, yes. Uh, check it out, folks. It's uh, Ken Russell, Roger Daltrey teaming up again after Tommy to take on Franz List. Whoo, boy. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the second of the four films we are exploring in this month of Kidman Appreciation. It is Fur, an imaginary portrait of Deanne Arbus, directed by Steve Shaneberg, starring Nicole Kidman and Mr. Robert Downey Jr. Uh, anything you want to say about it before we before I dive into my explanation of it, Brian? Uh, no, just that this was this movie was not at all what I thought it was gonna be. And I think maybe people who haven't seen it maybe will come in with the same you know, mis-expectations of it. So I think it's exciting to tell people what this movie's actually like. Yes, and we are very lucky we are going to cut... In the middle of this podcast, we are going to cut to an interview that I did with the director, Steve Shaneberg, and uh, we'll talk later about how that all came about. But now I'm going to play a clip from the film, and then I'll tell you about it. Turn around. Don't look at me. Um. Turn around. Take off your camera. Put 
please close your eyes now. I only want to take your portrait. Dear, please close your eyes. Step back from the window. on if you like. The bath is getting cold. In Fur, an imaginary portrait of Deanne Arbus, Nicole Kidman plays Deanne Arbus before she became the Deanne Arbus history remembers for her intimate photos of, quote, freaks and nudists and other societal outcasts. The film imagines Arbus as a late 1950s housewife and mother working as her husband Alan's assistant on commercial shoots in their apartment in New York City. At first, Fur has a proto-madmen energy with an exceptionally talented woman in cool 50s fashion stuck behind a fairly average man, but the film quickly shifts into the fairy tale transgressiveness that made director Steven Shainberg's secretary such a beguiling, outside-of-the-box hit. Kidman's Arbus finds herself drawn, camera in hand, to her upstairs neighbor's apartment, where Lionel Sweeney, soulfully played by a pre-Iron Man Robert Downey Jr., seductively initiates the imagined Deanne into the world she would go on to document as an artist. Lionel is a hirsute man. He has hypertrichosis, which means he is covered in hair from top <laughs> to toe. Lionel has made his living as a circus oddity and as a wig maker. And in his world, Deanne comes alive as an artist, where the Arbus home is sterile, Lionel's is ramshackle, where her life is domestic, his is strange. She has kids and a husband. He has a circus full of wild friends who eventually and quite literally come spilling out of the ceiling when Kidman's Arbus seeks to merge her worlds. And all of this might seem like it's a zany premise, but the feeling driven by Kidman's performance is one of hesitant, curious, silent rebellion and awakening. And uh, it is an imagined portrait, so it might not be a true story with a capital T, but it does work as an invitation to the world of Deanne Arbus, the artist, as, uh, as she is becoming who she becomes at the end of the movie. So it's a great invitation into her world. And, and I loved it, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I, I can, I'm very much looking forward to talking about it with you, Brian. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's uh, so I guess how is the world wrong about this movie? Well, a few things. First of all, as I say in my interview with Stephen, I feel like it's a culmination of something he was working on as a director through secretary. And it's always odd when someone gives you the best possible follow up to the film that was a hit and then people reject it. That and that's sort of what I feel about this film. I feel like there's something about 
the film is about the way society rejects outsiders and weirdos and quote again freaks it's a, a, a word that Deanne Arbus used to describe some of the people that she photographed and lived with and uh, I guess it's a loving and antiquated term um, but it's uh, it does express something about the aesthetic and 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 I guess not just the aesthetic of like what she's celebrating, but that the response of this, the people treat this film like it's the elephant man or Lionel Sweeney or like some, when the the way people talk about it, it's like mean kids taunting an, you know, a person who just is different and weird. And like this film is different and weird. And what Steve Shaneberg likes to make movies about is people who are different and weird. And, the way the sort of glee and joy as we got into it with the Jack and Jill thing, I guess it's probably one of my things is when I feel like a movie is trying to talk about something interesting and intimate. And then the, the culture wants to kick it and make fun of it for sort of like the easiest to pick out traits like, Oh, he's covered. Who cares about Robbie Jr. Robert Downey Jr. Covered in hair. Uh, make some joke about him. <laughs> it's like, that's exact. You're exactly the kind of person that this movie is trying to defend people like this, people like us, people who can feel like that, uh, from, or criticize it in that way. And so there's just something, there's a meanness in the way. So there's one that the response that it elicits a lot of times is this weird, ignorant meanness that's triggering for me. And then the other is just that I don't know how, I don't know what more you want from Steve Shaneberg if you liked Secretary. And a lot of people went from liking it to not liking it. We can talk about that. But uh but it's just so it's so much the next and better version of that thing. In the same way that like I don't know. Like Unbreakable is better than The Sixth Sense, and everyone knows it. (laughs) Fur is better than Secretary, but nobody knows it. So that's that's how that's that's a few of that's my 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 uh, minimal rant on how the world is wrong about this film. Uh, But also, I'm very it's very close to me. Uh, We're going to talk about it, but I acted in uh, Stevens' college uh, because. His student film, a big budget student film uh, that that, you know, basically I I followed his trajectory. And so I'm not just defending him as a fan of the film, but I also I guess I'm defending him as a peer. And believe me, we'll get into it. I have some criticisms, too. I'm not like it's not just blind fawning loyalty. I I appreciate him because he's really good. Um, So, yeah. So what did you think, Brian? Uh, I thought it was interesting because I went in kind of, I kind of went in reluctantly expecting like, oh, I don't want to see some docudrama, you know, biopic about a photographer. That sounds so boring. Like that's not a movie that I have any interest in watching (laughs) at all. And I didn't, I guess I just should have expected it to be what it was, which is like a more, uh, almost like a fantasy, like, like a weird kind of dream reality film about this person you know much like the tone of secretary uh or the prom which i watched before this um and so i just i was totally surprised and taken off you know just take like just completely just i couldn't believe like once robert downey jr shows up looking like a sasquatch i was like oh i had no idea what this movie that this with this this movie's this way i think the poster lied because the poster for the movie has a completely clean shaven handsome looking you know like 
Robert Downey Jr. kissing Nicole Kidman. So I just never watched this movie being like, I don't want to watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, I think, but I'm glad that it kind of lied because then it was like a true surprise. I was totally surprised that that's what the, this what this movie was in a good way. Like, and it's, and it just really, uh, it just, I like movies that have this kind of like dream reality symbolism. Like, and it's in, very interesting when someone does it as a biography about a real person. And that's sort of why I wanted to bring up Listomania. Cause I feel like Ken Russell in the seventies with his, with his biographies he did of all the different composers is very much like this movie in that it's like, he's not interested in telling just a real version of this person's life. It's more like symbolic. It's more like a painting. It's more about like the feeling and themes and the things that, that, that made this artist. And that's a more interesting movie than just sort of like, just a straightforward, like, like you see, like with about most, you know, musician, you know, movies where it's like, they were born and they got into this and then they met this person. And then this happened. Like, it's so much more interesting to do it the way that fur does it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, uh, I think it's also, well, I know this about Stephen that he is hugely influenced by Dan Arbus. So it's like, it's almost like a, like this sort of reverent fan fiction bio where yeah he's focusing on a three month period where Dan Arbus wakes up to her own artistry and leaves her husband and her kids to go off and begin what becomes this revolutionary career as uh, a photographer. And obviously, since this happens in 1958, there's there's also this sense of Deanne Arbus's awakening is also a metaphor for a lot of women's awakening. That's why I mentioned Mad Men in my intro like at the beginning, it feels like this, but then she goes on, like you'd say, said a much weirder trip because Deanne Arbus yeah. went on a much weirder trip. It's not because the director is insisting, no offense to, to Ken Russell, but it's not like the director is insisting on dragging someone into his wild and weird trip. <laughs> this is a sense of like, I don't know, there's a kind of perfection to it because when you now reverse engineer it, you can see that. Stephen was trying to make this film several times before and in both times you could look at those both as like little Deanne Arbus side stories in terms of what they're exploring and the way he explores them so there's just kind of a perfection of like the right person got the gig you know someone who's really into comic books and re like I guess maybe like John Favreau and the Mandalorian like there's a sense with that like he is really that nerd and he has lived his life. Yeah. Like he is the right guy for that job. Yeah. And, and like, but at the same time, everyone wants to do Star Wars. So, you know, there's probably a <laughs> lot of people who are the right guy for that job. Whereas there's something so particular and specific about this director's relationship to this artist where mm -hmm. it feels like it's almost like, what he's doing would be taking liberties if somebody else did it. You yeah. know, that sort of idea yeah. of like, okay, well, we're not going to really tell your story. We're going to take some facts from your story, put them all into one month, shake it all up, and it'll be a nice little, you know, Deanne Arbus milkshake. And <laughs> and I, I could, so there's like this playing with fire quality to doing that. 
Like you should yeah. only really do that if you have that innate sense of like, I may not know Deanne Arbus, but I know Deanne Arbus's work and I know what it feels like. And I know what it's like to hang out with other people who are as moved as I am by that. And I know what we resonate with. And I've spent years thinking about this and talking about this. And then he gets this opportunity to make this film. And then the cast, let's talk about Nicole Kidman as, uh, as Deanne Arbus, huh? <laughs> Man, she's great. It's <laughs> like, I think even the people that didn't like this movie or didn't, you know, they, they, they were kind of thrown by it. You can't argue that she, like, she's, she's brilliant in this movie, you know, like she's really, really good. I mean, she's good in everything, which is why we're doing a kid mania month, but <laughs> it's uh, like the way she can just disappear in a role, like within a minute, I'm not thinking that it's Nicole Kidman. I'm just like, this is Deanne Arbus, even though Nicole Kidman looks nothing like Deanne Arbus. If you actually look up what she looks like, but it doesn't matter because she can just embody the persona. and she just, she just does it so well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this film feels so good. When I, I, I just re- I rewatched it, but then I rewatched it again last night, and it really is a film that benefits from the second watch because when you're not worried about, there's not like suspense to it, but there's a little bit of suspense to it the first time you watch it, of like what's going to happen and is this going to go bad with the family? Because she's basically begins he she begins an artistic affair with her upstairs neighbor played by robert downey jr that becomes an emotional affair that becomes a physical affair yeah and there's in movies like that there's always this feeling of like oh what's gonna happen are the lovers gonna get caught is someone gonna get is there gonna be jealousy and broken hearts and it's that's there but once the that uh the suspense around that is gone and you get to really experience it as the fairy tale that it is yeah. it's uh it's ugh, i just love it i love the the i love the world that downey's character inhabits i love when she goes up there uh i love that there's a there's a great scene where like i mentioned in the intro where she finds a door like an attic door in her apartment and opens it up and brings it down. And then all of these circus people start coming out of the <laughs> ceiling and into her white 1950s world. And I just loved that. I loved that scene so much. Um, were there any standouts for you? For the scenes? Yeah, just like... I, I, I really like... The part where they both get into that bath together, yeah. where Robert Downey Jr. and Nicole Kidman are just like, it's just like there's this part where, again, like I've only seen this movie once, so you get a little nervous being like, is he going to do something bad to her? Is this going to be like a creepy thing? You know, because it's because their relationship starts out with him kind of asking these sort of inappropriate sexual questions or these uncomfortable, you know, quite personal questions. And then it goes into, OK, now we're going to take a bath, <laughs> bath together. But this, that, that there's something about that room where this bath is. It doesn't quite it adds to this dream quality of like, why would there be this kind of big, long pool, hot tub type thing in this like third floor apartment in new york it doesn't quite make sense but it makes it makes sense as much as anything does in this movie where it just feels sort of like a dream logic where it's like of course they're going to open a door and walk into a room where there's this weird bat large bath 
and then very large kind of, almost like a very, bathhouse very kind of large yeah. yeah and just the fact that it's like she, she her character here seems so vulnerable and kind of like this is a foreign world to her this is still very new to her this sort of like outside the norm world that she's going to embrace as a, an artist and so just like her get, getting into this tub with this you know sasquatchy looking guy <laughs> I th- thought that scene was really good. And I think once that part happened, I was like, oh, okay, I think I kind of know what this movie's... Now this is... the t- I was totally wrong what this movie was. I love that part. And I really liked the part where she's kind of hanging out with all these uh, circus people or quote-unquote freaks or whatever. And the, uh, the... I forget the actor's name, but the little person who was in Seinfeld as Kramer's friend sings this really great song and is watching him sing... That that part was so good, like that that part is really that I found that part to be very emotional and very. Uh, I just really liked that, and he has a pretty good voice. I don't think I've ever seen the actor sing in anything ever, but he sells it <laughs> in that part. And the bookends of the movie in the nudist colony, maybe because I really enjoy nudist colonies in movies, <laughs> and it's rare to see it. I really like those scenes and there's something about those scenes, the way it's lit and the way it's acted that for whatever reason reminds me of the movie, the master. And I don't know why, maybe because there's that part where he thinks he sees all those naked people (laughs) in the master, but there's something about those scenes and the way it's framed and the kind of the light, the blue and sort of like the way the people look like real people. Like these aren't the people you normally see naked in a movie. And this is like the first minute of the movie you're looking at this guy's balls, basically, truthfully. <laughs> and that's a shocking beginning, but I loved it. I loved it. It's like, okay, this movie's just going to just dunk you right in immediately into something uncomfortable and different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> uh... And also, why would nudists have wicker chairs? That's got to be the most uncomfortable <laughs> chair to sit in naked. And they're sitting in these wicker chairs. And you can tell it's uncomfortable because when they stand... Both the woman and guy's butts are just bright red from the uncomfortable wicker. Like, that is not a good nudist colony chair. You want to talk about uncomfortable. I I listened to the director's commentary on this, and they had to have all of the actors that auditioned for these roles come in and take off their clothes and sit there and talk because there's... There's, that's the only way to audition someone for that part because one you you want to see how they like what their bodies look like because they're going to be nude and you also want to see how comfortable they can be can you know could they sit there and not and seem like nudists could you yeah i could i could do that i couldn't <laughs> i love really but you're an actor and i just saw a movie for this episode where you're practically naked in it practically pretty much definitely (laughs) it's the it's you know viva la difference it's just the little bits that uh anyway uh who said little anyway uh so uh what was that there was something else i was going to say about it's funny that you mentioned the master because i watched steve's um i just finished even just like this morning just finished watching Steve's second film or his first film after the prom which was Hit Me and it was made I think the year of Hard Eight and it has Philip Baker Hall and William H. Macy in it and so I've been thinking about Steve and his career in terms of 
Paul Thomas Anderson because they basically, I mean, they've had very different careers, but they've been along a similar trajectory in terms of their first film to now. So I thought that's an interesting connection. Uh, I actually kind of want to, because I want to be able to talk about the interview. I want to go to that. But before we do, do we've been mentioning The Prom. We're not talking about the new musical with Nicole Kidman, which I also watched for this and uh, and spoke about in the uh, intro episode that we did for, you know, it's covering all of Kidman's stuff. But, uh, but, you watched The Prom, and I asked you, could you talk about it? Because since I'm in it, it's it's impossible for me to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to do it now or after the interview? No, you should do it before, because we're going to talk about it in the interview. Okay. And then people will... I, we don't, <laughs> Steve and I don't explain it, so... All right, so yeah, because I, I, I have questions about it. I'll save those till after the interview. But let me just kind of lay the plot out quickly. It's 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 lucky because the movie's under an hour, so it's an easy it's an easy plot, uh, not emotionally, but you know story wise. So uh, the great Andres Jones plays Marty, and <laughs> he's an odd high school kid because post gym he bathes in the janitor's closet, and you're like, okay, this is interesting. Why is there what is he just embarrassed to be? Because like I I was that way. In high school, I I didn't bathe in the janitor's closet. I just didn't bathe at all because I was too nervous to be around other men naked uh, in high school. But we find out that he has a weird problem with his body where there's these, I would say they're kind of like birthmarks, but they appeared long after he was born. They just kind of showed up on his body one day. And they're kind of like these weird sort of, like they almost look like scar. How would you describe it? They almost look like spots on an animal, basically. Or like that's... Right? Or like that scarlet thing that different people get on their skin. Yeah. yeah. Just dark brown splotches all over. Like, not his face. You really only can see it once he takes the shirt off. So it's all over his body at that point. Uh, and he, one lonely afternoon, decides to go into a peep show. To, you know, because why not? And to see, uh, to visit, uh, you know, to see a stripper in one of those private rooms, kind of like in uh, Paris, Texas, those little rooms where you sit in and you can see the lady through a window and you put, you know, quarters in a, in a slot. Uh, so he goes into a room called The Prom. And once he puts the quarter in, the window opens and there's Jennifer Jason Lee, sort of kind of dressed up, sort of like a teenage girl, uh, in a fetish sort of way. Uh, and this relationship kind of forms between uh, this exotic dancer and this kid and this awkward kid. And it's, it's, I and there's these great scenes of like putting the constantly putting the quarters in because she's like, come on, let's keep talking as the thing will close like right at some moment where it seems like some vulnerability will be shown or an emotional connection. And he has to keep putting the money in to open it up. And over days and days of, of kind of coming back and talking to this lady, uh, through this peep show scenario, an emotional connection forms. And uh, Marty ends up kind of waiting in the back alley outside the um, <clears throat> the peep show place. And is like, oh, look, can I walk you home? Or can we go get something to eat? And basically a nice little, um, you know, connection forms between these people, much like between the two characters in Secretary and much like in Fur. And basically, he warms up to eventually showing her his body that he's been so ashamed of, so scared of showing people. And sort of like, both of them have this great sort of understanding of one another and don't really care about each other's physical 
problems or her situation in life with what her job is. And it's just sort of, it turns into this actually sort of sweet, nice little um, story between these two people, a nice little connection that I think uh, Stephen Schamberg is so good at doing. Uh, and it, is that it? What, what did I leave out <laughs> for story? Oh, nothing. I I did, that, you know, just it's pretty good, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> along the way, we get to hang out with Cole Hauser and J.T. Walsh and Natalia yes. Nagulich. Yes. Uh, from uh, Walsh and Nagulich, particularly from uh, the world of Mammoth. So that was that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we go to the interview with Steve Shaneberg? In fact, I'll play a clip from the prom before and then we'll go to that and then we'll come back and we'll keep talking about this movie hey are you a virgin virgins make me horny turn around turn around I'm paying aren't I Your clothes on. Well, that's kinky. Just dance like a regular person, like somebody at a prom, a girl. Don't you think I'm a girl? Close your eyes. Yeah, they're closed. Okay, turn around. Come closer. Keep your eyes closed. Don't open them. I won't. You want to go to the prom with me? What do you want me to say? Say yes. Yes, I'd love to. The, the real prom? No, just this one, I guess. Ready to do this? Yeah, that's it. Sure. Okay, so I think we have to start off with the prom. If you and I are going to talk about Fur, an imaginary mm, portrait yeah. of Dean Arbus, we have to start with the prom, and not just because it's how we know each other, but because I feel like Fur is the culmination of something you started when you were at AFI and working on the prom. And so yeah, 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 I was sure. hoping you could just talk a little bit about that and how the prom connects sure, to sure. Fur. Well, I mean, I think you're, first of all, dead on right um, about that connection. And, <clears throat> you know, um, I'm, I, I grew up with Deanne Arbus's photographs on my childhood walls because my um, uncle, who's a writer, was very close to Deanne. And my dad was Deanne Arbus's daughter's psychiatrist. So sometimes my dad would get paid 
by Deanne just giving him photographs. And my uncle was really, really close to her and was part of a sort of artistic group of people that in New York at the time were, were very close. So her images of um, the sort of Mexican dwarf and transvestites and so forth were in my childhood home. And I was completely taken with them. And I knew I had never met her, but I always was hearing about her and where she was going and what she was doing. So I had, from a very young age, um, a kind of disposition toward unusual people. And both of my parents were psychiatrists. And so the dinner conversation was always about <laughs> their patients. Yeah. And uh, my sister and I would sit there and we would listen to them. And I think that these influences always made me uh, sympathetic to and, and compassionate toward and also wanting to sort of understand the position of the true uh, outsider, the really unusual being, whether physically or psychologically. So, um, you know, and, and, and just as an aside, that that continues today in a couple of projects that I'm trying to get made um, with, to some extent, you know, there's the straight line from the prom to uh, Deanne Arbus and the characters that she was trying to photograph and connect to all the way up to today when I'm still trying to make those kinds of movies. And, um, you know, it's it's just sort of like a fundamental uh, built in point of view on who I'm looking at and how I'm looking at them, even if they're an ordinary person like right now I'm working on a movie with um, Juliette Binoche and Alessandro Nivola, who's a very great New York actor. And Nivola is playing an ex-cop, but he's an absolute mess. And he's incredibly conflicted. And he's got a lot of troubles. And that's what draws me to that character. So it's always something inside that is boiling and 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 you know that the character is ruminating on and struggling with and you know that certainly for uh arbus arbus's character in fur she was struggling with the rest of her life and what path to take and 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 how to um be in touch with and how to uh, act upon what her most pressing uh, curiosity was. And uh, I, I just don't think that there's anything more vital that somebody can be working with either in real life or in a movie. You know, that that's the struggle. So that's, that's a short version of an answer. Yeah. Well, well, when I think of the prom and I think of secretary and I think of fur, I think of the three as really being a trio of films about yeah, two individuals sure. exposing themselves to each other in a very, yeah. and it, it's one of those things where that sounds, it's, that sounds sort of prurient and transgressive, but it, the way it's handled in your films is very slow and thoughtful and earnest. It takes these things that could seem uh, transgressive and strange mm -hmm. and yeah, treats them 
I, I'm very tenderly. And I, I just feel like that's, I guess that's, is that, are you saying that that's a theme that you're exploring in the next thing? Well, it's, a, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think the way you describe it is, um, y- you know, as, as I experience um, getting close to somebody else or as I experience, um, y- you know, the way it feels to, um, you know, it, it expose oneself and, and that's, um, y- you know, in the, in the realest sense, not just in like you take your clothes off, it's you take your clothes off in every conceivable way. That exposure is a frightful and exciting and dangerous territory, you know, for people. And, um, you know, I think for for me, that that idea of it, that experience of it is something beautiful and something moving. And, um, you know, it, I think it's a struggle for everybody. And so it's it's I, I think, you know, my perspective on it is um, in that sense, kind of it, it is unusual in this in the in the sense that, like, I'm pointing at something which doesn't get a lot of attention but is you know at at the center of living and it's it's not like intentional on my part it's just how i am it's just i i can't i don't i don't know it's like you know and and in a way when you know if people come to me with projects that don't have that element I just don't get interested. So on the one hand, I think I'm like relatively narrow uh, in terms of how I respond to making something, you know, because I'm in a way always looking for a similar feeling um, that's for whatever reason is important to me. Well, that definitely comes through. There is this really beautiful consistency. And I was thinking, going back and watching these, it's just one of those things where I guess I'm kind of, I'm like you in that way. Like, I'm looking at this and thinking, I'm so much more interested in this world. Like, if you were making movies, if you were this obsessed with gangsters, yeah, right. you would have yeah, made yeah. 12 films by now. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's incredibly difficult. It's like, I have, um, you know, 10 scripts sitting on my desk. I'm looking right at them now. And um, I can't get them made. I can't get them made. And they're all, I mean, if I, you know, they take place in different time periods. They are, uh, you know, some of them are cheap, some of them are expensive, but they all deal with a um, emotional question. They deal with a complex way in which, you know, someone emerges from some kind of inner prison to discover some something bigger in life uh, in one way or another. And the very fact that they take place primarily in an emotional landscape makes them fringe movies. It makes them movies which defy both the financier and probably ultimately the audience expectation for something else from a movie. Um, you know, it's like I went to a film festival once and 
this was in regard to uh, the first feature I ever made uh, from this Jim Thompson movie. And there, the woman, the buyer at the festival, I'll never forget, she said, You're, the ending of your movie is so sad. Why does it have to be so sad? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, you're here at the festival. You can purchase a lot of movies that have happy endings, but this one doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, so there's, there's, but there's very little opening for something else, you know? Um, yeah. 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 Well, I, this is where this, I guess, leads us to probably the most difficult question I have to ask. Uh, but so our podcast is called the world is wrong. And the, basically the goal is to challenge the way the world can be wrong about films. And there's something about, like, we're getting to that, but there's something particularly about, like, fur, and I think Secretary also, Mm. that led up to fur, that makes your films kind of like the characters you make your films about. You know, they're... They're, I mean, they're kind of freaks. They're that are easy to bully and pick on if you're yeah. if you're not a very sensitive or thoughtful person. And mm. I wanted to share a quick little anecdote that maybe mm. illustrates what I want to get to. Sure. So when Secretary came out, I was married, and my wife and all of her radical feminist, sex positive friends just glommed onto this movie, and they loved mm. it. I mean, the same people who had the ethical slut on their bookshelf or mists of Avalon, or we're really into peaches first record. And I, I, I mean, I fully dug secretary, but I also felt from these women in my life that they were something, there was something they were getting out of it that Mm -hmm. I understood about as well as Alan Arbus understands Deanne (laughs) in fur. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so interesting that, and particularly, I'm so curious about what the experience is like for you that 20 years later, that same type of women, based upon like in the world of Me Too, are mm. are reacting very different to the exact same work of art. Mm. And I feel like I feel like that's a that's a, a sign of strength in a work of art that it sort of mm. acts as a Rorschach test on mm. culture. Like mm-hmm. the movie stays the same, but. It meant one thing 20 years ago. It means a different thing now. And who knows what it's going to mean 20 years in the future. And and I, I've often thought about what it's like for you as an artist to have created something that is, you know, is a fixed entity. But the conversation yeah. around it has changed so much and continues to evolve in really interesting ways. And obviously on the outside of it, it's interesting. On the inside of it, it might be something else. So I'm just kind of curious how that experience has been for you. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a terrific question. And, and you know, um, I can't remember if I had said this to uh, Mike White, but, uh, it, you know, on his podcast, but, you know, um, I look at, the movies that I'm trying to make, um, with the, with, with, with the thought held in my mind very strongly that David Lynch had when he was making blue velvet, because when he was questioned about Isabella Rossellini's masochism in blue velvet, and then the dangerous step into the land of what does this say about what you think about women Mm -hmm. or what does this say about, um, 
what you think about sex. His response was, you know, um, I'm not quoting him exactly, but, you know, essentially his response was, no, no, no. This is this movie is about this particular person in relationship to this other particular person. And so the question that, you know, Rossellini's relationship to Dennis Hopper and Kyle McLaughlin and, you know, in Secretary, when I was making it and to this day um, in how I think about that movie or any movie I'm trying to make, I'm trying to be true to and understand the particular character as best I can, uh, you know, which comes with my own limitations, but, um, and, and how they would experience this other person and how things would go between the two of them, not how I want them to go politically mm-hmm. or to make a point or to say something about, um, people in general, because the question of, you know, what do you think the role of, you know, power is in male-female relationships, that's a question that has 500 million dimensions to it, depending upon who you're talking about. And, you know, in the case of uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character and, and, and James Spader's character, in that film, this is how it went between the two of them. And the, the the miracle of of that experience for the two of them is that they find something that, you know, fits. The key goes into the lock. And the thing I'm interested in is the lock and the key, mm-hmm. you know, for the particular people. So, you know, whether the movie was embraced by feminists 20 years ago and, dis, you know, attacked now by feminists and, you, you know, you have to ask the question, well, what's a feminist and what does that point of view mean? And then you have to tease that apart and then you have to tease apart what all the shoulds that immediately have evolved from me too. Uh, this is OK. That is not OK. There's a lot of brutal um categorization that's happening right now that is you know terrible for a lot of people um i'm not saying it doesn't need to happen in certain cases i mean harvey weinstein was a monster um you you know and there are monsters but that that there are also ways in which um people have unusual needs and unusual desires and those are not necessarily um uh something to politicize automatically there's a lot of you know stupid reductiveness that's happening right now um in, in you know across the board um it's not just about you know male female relationship it's or or power or sex it's it's happening everywhere and that's a that's a that's a different conversation, you know, about media and the level of the conversation and all of that. But um, so, you know, just getting back to the the center of your question, I don't really, uh, you know, uh, I think that the object of the movie, as you say, is a kind of cultural Rorschach test, and it it tells you more about the culture and more about 
the simplest simplistic response than it does about the movie the, the movie is its own world and it's only about that world and those people you have to imagine like you're looking through a little hole in the wall down a long corridor and at the end you see that world and you get to look into it and to, to make too many judgments is already to miss the point. What's so rich to me in this, as, as you're speaking, is the connection to being the child of psychologists. Like there's in the psychologist's office or the, uh, uh, did you say psychiatrists? Yeah, there's psychiatrists. My father was a psychologist. That's why I made the mistake. Yeah. But there's okay. like within the room, it has to be okay to unpack the things that the world would judge as deviant. And I feel oh, like yeah. in all in these three films in particular, that's what's happening over and over again. And so it's easy <laughs> if you looked in on someone, if someone could look in on your therapy session <laughs> and, <help> them. <laughs> and pick the, you know, and pick the worst thing that you are admitting to, like from your childhood or the wor- like the weirdest thing that happened in your relationship and then blow that up as if it's the same as Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. It just, I feel like there's something, this is not just to defend your films, but the yeah. things that your films are exploring, the will to pile on and bully on these characters is well, something. I'll give you, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, my response to that is that, Yes, of course, everything you're saying is absolutely accurate. But but what we're up against is Hollywood and, to a large extent, <clears throat> the actors who are working in Hollywood, they don't want to play weakness. They don't want to play fragility. They don't want to play vulnerability. They don't want to play um, even oddness. They, they most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time with most of the people, they want to play something powerful and masculine and heroic in one way or another. And that's just not who people are. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's an entire uh, aspect um, of life and, and who what human beings are and what one experiences is, um, you know, uh, it, it, it takes place in a dimension that has nothing to do with heroism or even bigness or even, you know, pumping out your, your chest and, and being a, a, a person who endures through the most difficult of circumstances and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, but it's that alone to turn and look at that is is already to say I'm trying to do something different, just something just something else. You know, it's like I said to the, you know, French buyer. Well, there's a lot of happy endings here. You could buy one of those movies. But, you know, it's it's difficult to get these um these films made because a the actors don't want to play these characters in general not exclusively um you know and 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 by the way unfortunately we lost a lot of the actors who did want to play these parts you know we we lost heath ledger 
you know, we, 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 I mean, it's crazy when you look at it, but you know, when, when he died and, you know, uh, a couple other guys died, we lost like 10, 12 of these movies a year because you can't replace them. Yeah. Philip you know? Seymour Hoffman. Well, that, that being yeah. a huge one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. We're a long way. As, as you're describing it, I'm just like, wow, we're a long, what inspired me to become an actor was exactly the opposite was mm-hmm. the James Deans and the Brandos mm-hmm. and the Clifts and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, I guess the Hoffmans and the Pacino, mm-hmm. like all these guys who wanted to explore the yeah. weakness yeah, and exactly. the weirdness yeah. and the, and the, the, the fragility. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we live in a world of superheroes. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, let's, Shift a little bit. You mm-hmm. you collaborated on both Secretary and Fur with I hope I'm pronouncing it right, mm-hmm. Aaron Cressida Wilson. Mm-hmm. And I just I'd love to hear about how that collaboration came to be. And obviously, if you worked on two films together, there must have been something rich about it. Uh, do you want to just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, she's um, she was a playwright in New York, and uh, a mutual friend of ours introduced us, and. Um, I had made uh, at the time a short film of Secretary, like a 25 minute movie um, from the original Mary Gateskill's story uh, called Secretary that's in a book called Bad Behavior. And um, so I had the short film and I had an idea of how it could be uh, turned into a to a feature. And, um, you know, I was I was. I, I had had a couple of attempts at it, um, not neither of which had worked, and I was pretty close to giving up on it. But when I had read uh, one of Aaron's plays and our friend in, introduced us, I thought, you know, this is a person who's never written a movie, but uh, who I think um, together we can find it. And... Um, you know, she's a terrific person. And, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, came from something of a similar point of view about um, both, both the short film and uh, Mary Gateskill's story. She, she saw in it what, what I saw in it um, and kind of took to the way in which I wanted to do it as a feature which was quite different from how the short was and how Mary's story was. So it was going to take a leap into another realm. But, um, you know, we just evolved a very, at the time, a very good working relationship that was, you know, totally, um, it was just a great uh, meeting of the minds and a great happenstance, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, for music, like you, you meet another musician and something about who that person is and how they see things just gels with you. And, you know, from that, something really good can happen. So, you know, I was lucky and she was lucky and um, that's what, that's what happened. So when it came to making fur, did you, work together to craft that script after the success of secretary or what? Yeah, that, well, that was a crazy, that was a crazy situation because I, as I said, you know, earlier on, I had grown up with Deanne and I, I knew, um, uh, 
you know, the influence of her was very powerful. And I knew and had read several times the Pat- Patricia Bosworth story, uh, the biography of, of Deanne, which was um, a lot of people thought it was somewhat superficial in a lot of ways and inaccurate in other ways, but it was the only one that existed and it had been a powerful uh, book for me. But I also knew all sorts of other things about Deanne. And I had in my mind, crazily, a Deanne Arbus movie. Like I, I knew how to make the movie on Dan Arbus, but I, I had never, I didn't own the rights to the biography. I had no access to any of it, you know, and her estate uh, and her, her daughters were particularly prickly about who was going to make the movie and all of that. Um, and Ed Pressman, who's a great independent uh, producer uh, for 40, 50 years, one of the greatest American independent producers there's ever been. Uh, he called me up and he said, uh, listen, you know, uh, we had been talking about a couple of other projects together. And he said, you know, I've developed about six movies from the Deanne Arbus biography, which he controlled. And I can't get any of them made. They're all too expensive. They're big period movies or they're too esoteric or they're too this or they're too that. I've never, he's never been able to, to, to do it. And I, you know, a whole bunch of various independent film directors had taken a swing at it. And he said, do you, do you have any, do you think you might be able to do it? Do you have any ideas for it? And I said, you know, it's crazy, but I actually have a very strong specific idea of how to make the movie about Arbus and it's not going to cost 40 million bucks to make. So I went in and I met with him and the other producer who was Bonnie Timmerman. And I said, look, here's how I, here's, here's the movie. And, uh, but I said, uh, you know, this is how I think you make it. This is what I think it's going to cost. But my only caveat is I'm not going to make a Dan Arbus movie unless I have final cut. And that's up to you guys. But, um, you know, if, if I were to jump in and do it, th- that's what it's going to take. And Ed, like, didn't hesitate. And he said, no, 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 I want you to have final cut. And, you know, he expressed, you know, total confidence in, in, in my capacity, but also in Aaron's capacity and, and in our collab- collaborative capacities to, to, to do it. And so, um, you know, th- that fundamental idea infer to take the very first photograph that DN makes about an unusual person, in that case, Robert Downey, and to, in some sense, focus the movie on the making of that one photograph and how she got to the point where she could do it. Um, the moment of transition in her life out of the commercial photography studio and her, you know, uh, essentially bourgeois life into the life that she would lead to become Deanne Arbus. That was the, that was sort of the breakthrough idea to uh, conceive of how you could do the movie. So, um, you know, uh, once we had that, um, you know, we could run and, and, and run hard towards it. So, you know, and, and the, 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 
just as an example, Deanne was very involved in myth and um, in Alice in Wonderland and the conceit of Deanne herself as a kind of Alice in Wonderland uh, character as Alice going into another world was not, it, it, it's fantastical in a way in the movie, but it actually was her reality. That's how she felt about what she was doing. So, you know, it was really um, interesting and, and compelling for me anyway, to, to make a movie about that feeling. You know, how do you leave your home where your children and your spouses to go out into the world to do something so unusual, but which your own curiosity is compelling you to do? That's a pretty, that's a pretty great question in life and, and for a character. So, yeah, so that was sort of how it worked, you know? And the film does a, I mean, it really does a great job of that, you know, just cinematically, but at the center of it, there's this really amazing performance from Nicole Kidman. Was she always like, when did she come on to the project? Well, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> We were going to make the movie with Samantha Morton and <laughs> Samantha Morton. I went to London and I was working with Samantha Morton and then uh, Samantha Morton got into all kinds of personal difficulties and, and uh, stopped returning, not just my phone calls, but everybody else's phone calls. And the movie fell apart and the financier was still uh, wanted to make the film and on um, Bonnie Timmerman was friends with i'm gonna get i just want to make sure i get this right she was friends with nicole kidman's acting coach hmm. and the acting coach was going to fly to australia to work with nicole on a movie that she was going to do there with russell crowe and bonnie timmerman gave the acting coach the script and she read it and she said yes I'll, i will give this to nicole she flew to Australia, gave Kidman the script. Kidman read it, and within that week, the movie with Russell Crowe fell apart. And Nicole said, well, we could make fur now. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was flying to uh, Sydney, and we had dinner, and we sat and we talked. And she said, yes, let's do it. And we went immediately into pre-production because her other movie had fallen apart and she wanted to do it as soon as possible. So it was, I mean, just a series of coincidences and happenstances that uh, led to her being in the movie. And, you know, the thing is, as I recall now, um. I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is this is much better because we were going to have, you, you know, Samantha Morton kind of looked like Deanne at the time, very big eyes and she's short and there was a, we could cut her hair to match. And I thought, no, no, this is this is much better because Kidman as a presence, as a physical presence, rips you out of the reality of whoever you might have thought Deanne Arbus was if you knew who Deanne Arbus was. 
and and I certainly did. I knew what she looked like and all of that. And and I just by instinct, I hate these biopics where you know they're they're the actor is cast simply because they might have some kind of physical resemblance to right. the star. And, and it, and it never, it's never true. You know, it's like Will Smith cannot be Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Right? That, that's not acceptable, you know, it, it, to me. I mean, I'm sure it works commercially or, or whatever, but like, I'm always embarrassed, you know, that it, there's just an, Oh, come on. Really? You know, and and Kidman, for me anyway, transcended all that. It just ripped it into the land where it was, you know, anyway, which is this kind of uh, taking place in Deanne's mind. You know, it doesn't matter what she looks like physically because it's her mind that we're focused on. The thing I realized watching Fur going back and watching it. And I'm, I'm on this deep dive of looking at a lot of Nicole Kidman films. Cause we're doing a, a whole month on, on her just feel like, uh, yeah, even though she's incredibly famous, I also, I just don't feel like she gets talked about as an actor in the same way that like people talk about like the, the love that people have for Nicolas Cage. Now I feel like, Nicole Kidman is in the same category. She's just, but where, whereas Nick, Nick, Nicholas Cage goes loud, she just gets quieter and quieter. And quieter. Well, the thing is like Nicole is a character actress in the body of an incredibly gorgeous creature, but, but she's fundamentally a character. actress. Oh yeah. I mean, so, you know, she's not, I mean, to some extent, I adore Nicolas Cage, by the way, and uh, tried to get him to do a movie recently, and he said no. Damn it! But um, I thought he didn't. I did. Does he say no? To- <laughs> he said, believe, "Yeah, he says no a lot." So, uh, uh, but anyway, you know, uh, the thing about Cage is like, there's always an aspect where you really do feel like Cage is, I don't know, using himself, you know, in a in a way that uh, is a bit cartoony. Let's say. Uh, there are exceptions to that, obviously, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, um, I don't know. I think, I think Nicholas Cage, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do a movie with him was I, I think that he often is taking the easy way when the harder way would be so much more easy, more interesting. Yeah. But, but Nicole, I think is just an actor who, I mean, there is truly something different in you know, performance to performance to performance, that's, I mean, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's almost shocking, you know, how different she can be. And she does want to disappear and become who the character is. Um, So, I mean, I I don't, you know, her uh, beauty and, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of, you know, in the, the incredible uh, way she moves and all of that, um, you, you know, might make you think that she isn't, um, I don't know, like a, like a character actor on the level of Philip Seymour Hoffman or something, but she is. There's no, there's no doubt about it, you know? Yeah, in, in doing this research, the actor that I've been thinking about the most in watching her one well one is sort of an easy touchstone is barbara stanwick but the the deeper feeling i've been getting is alec guinness 
is <laughs> well, <you're... laughs> that's a... <laughs> yeah that's a weird comparison but okay <laughs> they both get stronger the quieter they get and they're both people who used the you know the theatrics of makeup and hair and just like transform themselves in these ways that are that they're so good that they're not showy right yeah. the, the transformation is so perfect that you just feel like oh well that's just what she looks like now and it's like no no she's wearing yeah. a wig she's doing physical stuff yeah. and again it's that silence to me especially there was a, there was one particular scene in fur where she's with downey and you can almost feel like he's punk. Like she gets so she gets quieter, and then he gets quieter, and then she gets yeah. and he gets quieter, and he's almost like <laughs> mocking her with this silence. And I just I loved those scenes, and it just gave me this insight into her of like the power of silence as an actor. But it also yeah, made me yeah. curious as a director working with that. Were you aware of that? And like because it felt like there's a way that sonically the film fur mm. like just the mm. creaking of floorboards yeah yeah all that stuff is great yeah i love all that stuff yeah and well we had an amazingly fantastic sound designer uh who is remains uh on my team forever but um you know one of the things it's, it's interesting what you're saying because you're responding to something super subtle and uh <clears throat> one of the things that we did do which I noticed actually more like in even when we started doing rehearsals um, is what you're pointing to. And I ended up shooting. Um, and, and this is something that I've that I intend to continue doing forever, which is I shot the scenes without words um, often. So we might do say four or five, six takes um, with the text, with people speaking, and then we would do uh, a pass uh, 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 once or twice where they were not allowed to talk, but they had to convey the scene by looking at each other. And a lot of the stuff that you're responding to were takes from those the, those takes. So you know you might have a line from downey but when you cut back to, back to uh nicole it's it's a it's a moment from the silent take mm. and, and so that becomes incredibly useful in terms of reaction shots and the feeling that somebody has to be in touch with when they don't have the words to go to but um you know I remember one moment when we were shooting and uh, I said cut and Bill Pope, who was the DP, who's the one of the great DPs who shot all the Matrix movies and stuff. Um, and he was an old friend of mine. He came over to me, he said, man, I have never seen an actor that good every single take from action to cut. Like there's literally not a we could have made the movie on Nicole with one take. I, I really mean that. Like, we could have done a single take all the way through the film and had a beautiful movie. Um, and I'm I'm sure that any director who's worked with her knows exactly what I mean. It's just, uh, it's just kind of stunning. Yeah, I feel I mean, like that's the Stanwick thing. Like that's yeah. like so. That's the thing. She's like you. Just get this sense that she is the ultimate pro as an actor exactly that like watching 
good whatever kind of film she's in a good film yeah. a great film an okay film or a bad film she's yeah. always right there like yeah she's I, she's, she's like she's like uh, Federer yeah. you know it's it's just you know you cannot describe or uh, you know somehow put your finger on how beautiful that guy is when he's playing and she's the exact same way it's just a it's just a total mind boggler you know and and by the way it's not to say like you know that doesn't happen without work and questioning and conversation and uh going into what the character is experiencing and talking about that and trying things and so forth there's a you know, it's a, it, it's, it, it doesn't happen automatically, but does it, you know, it's, um, it's just like, uh, Secretariat was a really great horse. And those were just the genetics, you know, the horse could win the triple crown. So that's who she is. Yeah. Well, yeah. on the other side, I'm just curious, are you a big fan of Tough Turf? <laughs> it was the film. It's a it's a film from the late '80s, starring James Spader and Robert Downey Jr. as uh, young God. high school tough kids. <laughs> so I was just I when I when I never I, even saw that movie. When I see that you go, okay, you got Jay. You know, you got you work with some pretty great people. You know, uh, you got this run of Jennifer Jason Lee, Maggie Gyllenhaal. And Nicole Kidman, three of the great actresses of their generation. And then you have this double, you know, this I'm, I, I'm excluding myself for the for your benefit. But <laughs> but uh, but then you then you go with Spader and Downey. And I was like, I'm a big fan of Tough Turf. And I was like, yeah. oh, wow. When's this Kim Richards film going to be? <laughs> well, she was know, also guys... in Tough Turf, by the way. But how yeah. did Downey come to this project? You know, when when we cast Downey, he was pretty down on his luck. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, um, I adore Robert and I think he's, um, you know, um, he's 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 taken a route that that he chose, I think, quite consciously. And that's entirely about his life and his choices. Um, but. Uh, one wishes that he had continued in the direction of great performances because, you know, he certainly wouldn't have been as rich as he is, but my goodness, you know, he's one of our greatest actors. And, um, again, you know, uh, he could, he could still drive interesting movies if he wanted to make those choices. But, you know, we came to him because, uh, certainly at least at the time I was interested in his, um, sort of beautiful, uh, vulnerability and tenderness and a, a kind of a, a depth of, of experience, which again, at the time he had recently come through so much trouble mm -hmm. and I wanted him to bring that to the movie, you know, and to, uh, give the character a kind of otherworldly uh sage-like quality and you know robert can have that and he's uh incredibly touching person um so you know he was 
very right for the role. And, you know, uh, I, I just, uh, you know, he, 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 I keep, I keep a list um, in my filing cabinet of actors that I just adore. And maybe, you know, one of the things that I think about now is not so much who's right for the part, but what would the part be in the hands of this person? Like, I'll just give you an, an example that pops into my mind off the top of my head. I, I adore Michael Shannon. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people might say, well, Michael Shannon plays this sort of scary, aggressive, lunatic sort of character. And not so much the tender, softer, or average, or whatever the other character you might want Michael Shannon to play. He, he, he might not seem like that guy because he's been so consistently used in a particular part. But I like the question, what would this part be, or whatever it might be, with Michael Shannon playing it? And there was a sort of similar thing with Downey and Fur, where you know, you had to ask yourself the question, like, well, what would it be if this incredibly unusual person were played by Downey? What would happen to it? And I think it was kind of, it took it into a kind of a, a mysterious land that, that, that I wanted. So the fit was there. It might not have been as easy to see, but it was there. And, you know, what I believe in or I'm interested in more and more and almost almost exclusively is, you know, not so much how does the person look? Do they look the part? Because you can almost always make somebody look the part. But does their inner landscape conveyed through their eyes with what we're going to do in the movie, does that work? And that's the basis for matching a character to a movie you know you also have to at some point you know just be honest which is you might go to 15 people and they might all pass on on a script and you end up with a person who lo and behold seems like the only person who possibly could have played the part so you know um you have to be at the right you know, place in the right time for an actor's life too. Robert Downey's not going to play this character in Fur now. Yeah, well, I, that, I'm yeah. glad he did. Like, I can't imagine. I'm sure you had a list of other people, but to me, thinking I can't imagine anyone yeah, else well, playing that sure. role now. Sure, at this point, that's how it goes, right? Once they're on the in the movie, you're like, well, you know, if the movie works, you you think that that guy was the only guy. Really, know, she was the only woman. You know, yeah. I can't really, I mean, just for like, for kismet reasons and just for performance reasons, it's, it's so perfect. And it was, it was, that was the beginning. It was really both actors. That film put both actors back on the map for me. Well, no, I think it, I mean, listen, I, I remember Robert calling me, I don't know, maybe I can't remember how long after fur it was and saying, Hey, will you, will you read the Iron Man script? Uh, I don't know if I'm going to do it. And, I, I read it and I, you know, we talked on the phone and I said to him, this is not a question of like, is this a good script or is this not a good script? This is a question of, do you want to take your life in this direction? That's, that is, the, that is what you have to answer. I can't tell you that like, this is a lousy script or this is a good script. It's not even a script. It's not even a movie. <laughs> it's a thing. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, if you want to put on the spandex suit, that's up to you. That's that's going to be the trajectory that you take if you want to take that trajectory. That's that's it. You know, it's not about the script or 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 this character such as it is, you know. Yeah. So, well, I've kind of I've I've deliberately left two of your films out of this discussion. One hit me, which I haven't seen. Sadly, it's very hard to find. I'm I actually yeah. tracked down a DVD and have ordered it because I now I need to fill that uh, part yeah, of my yeah. of your filmography out. Yeah. But also Rupture, which yeah. I feel like is a big departure. But I'm just kind of curious if you feel like those two films bear yeah, no, some Rupture, sort of. I think yeah. Rupture, I think, exists in a similar realm in 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 different ways. You know, I mean, I think I, I love horror movies. Uh, I don't like like slasher movies or like uh, many of the super violent movies. Um, But what I what I what I what what made me want to I mean, first of all, what made me want to do it is that I was interested in uh, could I take the experience of fear and opening yourself up to your own terror within the context of a horror movie and make it almost about like this abstract spiritual dilemma. And in a way, Rupture is exactly the same as Fur. You know, Numi Rapace, who is also just an absolute phenomenal person, entirely different from Kidman, but um, tremendous presence. In that movie, she's confronted with uh, the way in which fear and transcending it is transformative and how uh, allowing yourself to experience fear um, can cause monumental changes in your life. And that's the exact same thing that Deanne Arbus's character was doing. So it, you know, you know, somebody who knew me, actually, I think at one point she said, she laughed, you know, this was before we were shooting. She's like, you've already made this movie. (laughs) I said, well, it's kind of true, you know, but this is in a completely different box. You know, it's a completely different music box. Um, And for sure, that's true. Uh, But for me, it was like uh, it, 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 it posed certain challenges. Uh, I'll just give you one example. You know, in that movie, for a tremendous amount of time, I, I can't remember what it was on the clock, but, you know, maybe it's like a full hour of the movie. You have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And the character has no idea what's going on. And um, I wanted to see, I mean, one of the things that turned me on about it was I wanted to see how long that could be sustained which is in a certain way the experience of going into your own fears you get very lost in what the hell is happening to you and you can really not know and you need guides on that in that sense i mean you need people who are helping you you can't do that on your own really um you know you either need a really good psychiatrist or you need a really good spiritual teacher or a really good friend or a really good spouse or uh, you, you know, you need help, and she has help in the movie. 
But all of it is taking place again, you know, in a sort of mind space. And, you know, what's happening in her is fundamental. Just like what's happening for Maggie Gyllenhaal or, you Mm. know, in in a way for your character in The Prom and for uh, Deanne Arbus's character. And I'm sitting here drawing storyboards for this Juliette Binoche movie and I'm asking myself the same question, you know, which is what what is happening to her in this movie and, and, and point by point, beat by beat where she's being forced to see an aspect of herself that she's kept at bay for her whole life. So, and it's in a completely different uh, music box in this case, for sure. So, um, yeah, I don't, I I think, uh, you know, what's happening inside the character that really matters is always the question that, I'm I'm drawn to, uh, you know I'm 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 not drawn to like you know p- political dramas like Oliver Stone or or giant gorgeous canvases like you know De Palma or something like that. You know I'm I'm interested in what happens between uh, the ears of the central character and 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 how it's a challenge. And in that sense, just just going back to the the question of those movies they're all they're all dealing with that in one way or another yeah. sadly yeah sadly. no no I, <laughs> I, wish well, I, could, I wish i could just make a western i you know, so, you know what I, I i i feel it because i i want you to be successful but i wouldn't want you to put on the spandex suit yeah well i mean listen you know it's like uh uh yeah i mean i'm i'm as I say, you know, from going back to one of the first things I started with, you know, these things that we're talking about and, and that are sort of compel me to to try to make the, the stack of scripts that, that are on my desk, it it's um it's not the average fare. And, you know, um things have gotten worse and and more difficult and more banal and more obvious and all the rest of it. So, um, you know, uh, the pleasure of making, um, you know, constructing the beautiful violin with its neck and its, you know, its body and its, its, its strings and all the rest of it. The thing that makes that, uh, instrument beautiful, the thing that makes the movie beautiful, um, not a lot of people are interested in that anymore, you know, um, and oh. more so in this country than, than anywhere else. But, um, you know, like I just give you an example, like I, I adore the uh, Italian filmmaker Paolo Sorrentino, uh, who made, I think, one of the greatest movies of the last 25 years or so, uh, a movie called The Great Beauty. And, um, you know, the movie's so beautiful. It's so tremendous. It's so awe-inspiring you just shake your head and think well you you know or you look at a movie like the handmaiden you know that park john wook made i mean these movies are cannot be made in this country anymore there's no way you know it's like there's no financier would ever put that kind of money behind such a film 
And, you know, one could draw a very long list like that. Um, although there aren't that many movies that are as great as The Great Beauty and, and The Handmaiden. But um, so it's, uh, you know, it's super difficult because you can't make a movie like Fur, you know, for, for five million bucks, six million bucks. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, you have to have the time and the money to make those sets and to be able to get those performances and to make those shots and so on and so forth. It's like they're not movies that are made for very little money. And once you get above a certain budget level now, there's, you know, a, a, a financier does not ask the director the question, what do you think it's going to take to make a beautiful movie? They don't. They ask the question, what's the least amount of money that you can possibly spend to get part of this movie on screen? <laughs> That's the nature of the, 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 the landscape now. Yeah, so it sucks yeah. to live in a shithole country, doesn't it? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, things are getting better. You know? <laughs> yeah, January 20th is coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's hope. Uh I there's one other really thing that I really wanted to explore with you because when we worked on the prom I didn't know who Dennis Johnson was. I it was yeah. a name on a script, had no idea who it was. And then when I read Jesus uh, Jesus's son, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had I didn't put it together. I was like I love this novelist and I got into I read a couple <laughs> of his funny. books before I realized, wait a second, I was in a movie <laughs> this guy wrote. <laughs> Crazy, man. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'll tell you, I actually, I, I wrote a book a few years ago, actually like eight, eight or nine years ago now. And I, when I did, I had a weird synchronicity with a line that I found in Tree of Smoke that was uh-huh. in, uh, that was in our movie. The, huh. I think the gift, he used the line, the gift of desperation in uh. Tree of Smoke. And so I, I sent him my book and I wrote to him and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a new author and. I just, you know, I wanted to connect with you because of this wild synchronicity. And he was so nice and he wrote back yeah. and we exchanged emails and he had actually invited me out to visit him in Idaho and it just, it didn't work out. Oh, too bad. But I'm sorry to hear that. I know. I feel very, very sad about that. But I'm, yeah. I've been so curious and you collaborated on two films together and he is oh, such a all, great novelist. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, just tell me about your, your connection with Dennis. Oh, I mean... You know, it's it's uh, it's painful to talk about because he was such a great person, and mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the one of the greatest people I've ever known for sure. And I'm I know that anybody who knew him and was friends with him would have said the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, he I lived part of my life in uh, Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And we had a beautiful house in the woods. And when I was very young, I was talking on the phone with my dad. And I said, uh, uh, hey, I read this great first novel called Angels by Dennis Johnson. And my dad laughed and he said, Dennis lives down the, down the road, man. <laughs> and I said, you got to be kidding me. And uh I said, uh, that's nuts. And he said, yeah, yeah, he lives down the road. You know, um, you know, if you if you if you want to talk to him, I'll put you guys in touch. And I said, well, you know, I'd be interested in knowing if he'd had an interest in in making angels into a movie. I was like 23. Maybe I was 22, 22, 23. And um, 
He said, well, I'll mention it to him the next time I see him walking his dogs in the woods. <laughs> so he mentioned it to Dennis. And uh, the next thing we were on the phone and we were talking about it. And I, we, we made a deal for me to option it for like $10. And we uh, exchanged pages on the script. And uh, anyway, we, we, we came to a script. And then I went out to see my dad and I went to meet him and I got out of the car. I'll never forget this. I got out of the car and he came out of his house and he, he looked at me and he said, you motherfucker, you're just a fucking kid. (laughs) And I said, I said, yeah, but, but, (laughs) but, and that became a, the beginning of a very long collaboration and, and friendship in many different ways. And um, you know, uh, he was just a profoundly unusual person and, um, you know, an, an incredible genius. I mean, somebody who, you know, with an hour at the typewriter could do better than most people for a year at the typewriter. Yeah. He was, uh, he was just, uh, he just had a facility that, and a, and a soul that were totally special and beautiful. And, um, so, you know, it, it, it you know, it was, uh, I mean, I think anyone who knew him was somewhat in shock by by what he was like that's what i'll say you know it was not the the experience of him was not like the experience of most people um he's just a totally unusual guy from i i assume for his whole life but certainly i knew him you know when he was quite young uh when we first worked on angels he wasn't that much older you know maybe he was in his mid-30s um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I never, I never knew anybody like him. So, yeah. Oh, well, thanks for talking about him. I, it's, yeah. it's always, yeah, I get it. When there's someone who's an artist and people, we know him as an artist and then you know them as a person. It's, it's, yeah. it's a lot, it's, it's a lot harder to talk about. I am, I mean, I've, Almost every one of his books that I've read, I've thought this should be a movie. Well, I mean, people are there's lots of people who um, have tried, are trying. Um, you know, they're 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 not easy adaptations. He did some of them. Uh, he and I did an adaptation of Jesus' Son, not the script that uh, that uh, got made um, before the script that got made. Um, you know, and and there were other, uh, there were producers and 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 so forth who I I, I mean I, I I contemplated Tree of Smoke myself for quite a long time, but I, I just felt like it was beyond me. You know that that I just I just couldn't uh, I I don't believe I would be the right person to do that kind of gigantic canvas. You know, but um, you know certainly people have tried and are trying still. So, you know, but it falls into the category that that we were talking about, yeah. you know, 
So, you, you know, these things don't just, uh, they, they don't become movies without some amazing luck and somebody who comes along and believes, you know? Yeah. Tree of Smoke seems like it's a huge one. I was, I'm surprised. Yeah. I'm surprised. I was like, I feel like Resuscitation of a Hanged Man or mm-hmm. Stars mm-hmm. at Noon would be the the, mm-hmm. the Shaneberg Dennis Johnson uh, projects yeah, that I'd love to the see. Stars at Noon. I mean, I think that's a great. And there's a producer yeah. here in New York, I think, who's been trying to do uh, Resuscitation of a Hanged Man. So those are not, um, yeah, those are those are smaller scale for sure. Um, but you know, you you you. I mean, in a way. I don't know. It would take somebody phenomenal yeah. to be able to adapt them now um, without Dennis around. Right. Um, to, 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 to at least in some ways be helpful, you know? Um, I don't know. You, it's, it's, uh, why don't you give it a shot, you know, see if any of those things are available and, and try it. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to really experience some unhappiness. <laughs> Time passes. Whew, what do you think about that interview, Brian? That's great. And, uh, you know, it wasn't quite at Larry Bishop length, which is a little disappointing. I was missing that extra 90 minutes on top of that hour. He didn't have so many. He didn't have as many actors to talk about. <laughs> but it was still very fruitful. And I think he really hit it. And I think we're definitely like we, we this is why one of the reasons why we're doing this month is like, Yes, Nicole Kidman is a character actor trapped in a beautiful person's body. And that's exactly, I think, why the world is wrong about her. Because people, some people just haven't caught on to that yet, who don't understand that's why she is as good as a Nicolas Cage or a Steve Buscemi. You know, like, it's just, it's, I think it's hard because actresses tend to not be thought of as character actors, mostly only actors, because their actors tend to be, male actors tend to be weirder looking. So I think it's like that was a really good insight and very true. Yeah. Were there, is there anything you wish I'd asked? <laughs> no, I think you did. I think you. I. I think you did good. I. I can't think of anything. I also really like. It was interesting to learn about uh, Downing, like kind of going from this to Iron Man for Downing, actually having uh, Shaneberg read the script to kind of ask his advice. And it seemed like he gave the right advice, and Robert Downey Jr. just ended up doing whatever he wanted, anyways. But uh, <laughs> and becoming, you know, this big, bigger super global superstar that he is now. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, yeah. I get, I get sort of where they're both coming from. Yeah, you know, I mean, if I was Robert Downey Jr. and I went through what he went through, I'd want, I'd want some like protect me money. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't, it's a different thing. It's a different thing uh, for, you know, because he, he was an artist and he got kicked around, you know, by himself, <laughs> but also by everybody else. And I think when you've had that experience, there's this sense of like, this could all go away. And like, and like, and like, it's not like we didn't, we only got like two great little movies from right. Downey before he made these big, like he, like there was a good like 25, 30 years of him being this amazing, eccentric, crazy actor in movies and then when he's in his 50s, he wants to be in these giant big movies. Great. Who cares? Like, that's better than, like, Dirty Grandpa or whatever crap Robert De Niro's doing, you know, <laughs> as an old man. Like, sure, like, make, you know, make, uh, you know, make these big comic book movies. They're not for me, but they're clearly for everybody else on planet Earth. 
So good for you. And it's funny because uh, there was, I, th- I think it was, I don't remember what late night show it was on. I don't know if it was like a Conan O'Brien or what it was. But at the time that Iron Man came out, the question was asked by the host, like, why why did you make this movie? Like, it's so interesting to see a big $100, $200 million movie with you as the star. Like, how did you get to this point? This is so interesting. And he's like, well, I made a movie fur. And then the host was like, oh, what? I don't know what that is. I've never heard of it. And Danny, Danny was like, exactly. <laughs> I make these movies that nobody sees. I want to make a movie that everybody sees. And that's why I'm doing Iron Man. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think and I think the most interesting takeaway from the interview for me was his technique of filming silent takes, which here, knowing that going, I actually, I listened to the interview before seeing the movie and knowing that going into the movie, like any movie I make, I want to do that now too. That's such a great idea. I don't know if he's the first to do that, but that's really smart. Like that's a really smart way to also get what you want out of editing. Like if, if the scene didn't quite work and you don't realize it till after you filmed it, just cut to someone thinking or emoting without saying anything. I think that's great. And I, and that works for an actress like Nicole Kidman, who just puts it all in that you could like, what would this movie be like if it was all silent? I would love to see the director's cut of this with just the silent takes. That would be amazing. I wish that existed. (laughs) Honestly, someone should do like, I, and by someone, some night when I'm really high, I should do a super cut of just Nicole Kidman's silences. You could make, I bet you could make a great two-hour movie just grabbing, it's sort of like what I did with the John Bryan thing. Yeah. Where you just like, across her movie, just her silent reactions and looking at things. Yeah, yeah. She, she does silence... I don't know anyone who does silence better. I maybe right now I'm fully uh I don't know, overcome with kid mania. So <laughs> there may be but also she's in an age of like of sound technology where just sound design on films is so like I don't know Barbara Stanwyck pro- or uh, Ingrid Bergman or Greta Garbo probably all use silence wonderfully. But there's always this crackle and hiss in their work. So they don't get to really use silence. And the way Nicole Kidman uses her silences. And if you know it, if you watch it now, it doesn't matter what movie. It's like, I don't know. Now it's like when she, uh, Nicole Kidman getting quiet is like watching (laughs) Tom Cruise run. (laughs) (laughs) You want it in every movie. You want it. And you're going to get it. And you're going to get it. And in this movie, she's really quiet. Like you said in the interview, like she, it kind of forces you to like kind of lean closer into the, this towards the TV, you know, towards the movie screen to kind of be like, oh, what is she saying? It gives you that more, that intimacy, you know, and that adds so much emotion to the story. And then, yeah. And then that once that small, quiet talk turns into total silence, then you're really drawn in. Then you're really just like, what? You're stuck you're just stuck watching this person in a movie. I really encourage people if this if you're inclined this way, try and imagine like if you watch a couple of her films and get into her way of being, try and imagine living in that being that she is because it's not just the voice. She's the way she's using her eyes, the way she's 
it's like this this thing that's in motion all the time but totally still it's such mm-hmm. an odd thing and we're going to get into it there's a scene in birth which i feel like this and birth they were made in the same period and they're almost like the same film but different uh they're different stories different tone but they take place in this new york this very quiet wealthy new york um i don't know just there's a sense of mystery and awakening and impending nightmare if you get caught and closing <laughs> in you know sort of oppressive apartments that are also yeah. really ornate and uh i'm really looking forward to talking about that in uh our next episode with your with your buddy Zach. But have you did you see Birth? Oh yeah, I love that movie. That that movie. And you're right. This movie feels like that, in the way of like sort of this, um, this person having a who's trying to act on her emotions, but kind of with this battle of like what she should be doing according to everyone around her, as opposed to what she feels like she should be doing, true, being true to herself. Um, and Birth very much has that as well as this movie fur and birth and the, yeah just it's what nicole kidman at that point in her career and when you're looking at an artist you're like okay well look at what she's exploring and i'm glad that she's still like from this movie all the way up to now she still will do these weird little movies like truly take a chance like is she is is she the biggest star to do that like it's like like peeps being that famous as she is like she's known around the world she is truly a superstar but she'll do all these strange little movies like like this movie doesn't seem like an expensive movie this is definitely not a movie for everybody like i totally get why people don't like this movie like i understand it it's not the movie that's everybody's cup of tea but i love that she'll read a script like this and be like all right when are we gonna do it let's do it (laughs) you know like my Russell Crowe movie fell apart. Like, let's do uh, this weird little thing that not a lot of people will see. And I really, and she's never lost that. Like, like, like Robert Downey Jr. kind of only does big movies now. He doesn't go back to the furs anymore. He has kind of just stuck with Dr. Doolittle and like movies that are huge. But Nicole Kidman always goes back well, to these little movies. As we discussed in our intro episode, Nicole Kidman has never had a bad year no yeah <laughs> i mean robert down robert downey jr had some bad years again people make different choices for yeah like, yeah i have the sense that at by by the turn of the millennium nicole kidman has never had to make a choice based upon money or desperation or like other than like oh there's good money for this and i get to do this yeah of course or you pay me what i'm worth of course but never like oh man if I don't take this, you know, this mar- this whatever movie, I I might lose my house. <laughs> I can't pay my lawyer my lawyer's fees or whatever they. But Robert Downey you know, Jr. is so- fine now. Like he's got trillions <laughs> yeah, of dollars. No, he can yeah. make a fur again. He can go back right. to doing that if he wanted but to. But let's. <laughs> but staying focused on like the the Nicole Kidman thing about you're right. Like she does continue in Paperboy, which we kicked off this whole adventure with. Uh, it's a, such a different film and it's like 10 years later. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, I hope that as she gets older, she keeps taking chances forever. Like, I can't, I'm trying to think of who is an actress in their 70s or 80s, you know, that kept on, like, trying new, different things. Like, I don't know. It's, she might Someone be the only one. star like that. That could, yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there definitely are, but people who are that level of star. Um, hmm. There's another film I actually be I want to get back to talking about fur and there's another film that I want to talk about that I thought about a lot that's from around the same time which is Human Nature. Oh yeah, that's a great movie. I love that film. It's one I'd love to cover on the show sometime. That's one of the I feel like that's the least heralded Charlie Kaufman yeah script. Yeah. Uh, Patricia Arquette and Tim Robbins and Reese Ephens, and uh, I believe that's who it was. Yes, uh, yeah. that's his name. Yes, and it's an, another story about, in this case, about a hirsute woman. And there's a, when I was watching Fur for this, I kept thinking about Human Nature and thinking, oh well, that's an almost too obvious double feature. I think <laughs> Fur and Birth is the real double feature. To, to dig into but you're a fan of human nature yeah yeah and all these movies i just i wish there's not movies like this anymore you know like i just watching fur i just kept thinking like these kind of strange small films that actually get seen by some people like they don't make these movies anymore like the things that come out of film festivals and the small movies people make don't quite have this kind of, it's not quirky I feel that's not the right word to describe what these movies are, but they're just like, they're different. They're not like big, they are the alternative to the big movies. Like I think small movies now kind of feel like resumes or business cards to make the bigger movie. Whereas something like fur or human nature is its own thing. And in that interview, Schoenberg talked about that. It's like so hard and he's got this pile of scripts on his desk and it's so hard to make yeah, movies that have a downer ending or do, isn't like the thing you normally see. And I feel like that is lacking now. And I wish that would come back. Like I wish there was a way that people could make money off of strange little, you know, interesting character studies or, you know, just like like the actual alternative to Iron Man, you know? Yeah. Um, You hipped me to something that I should have known. But I didn't, which is that Alan Arbus portrayed in uh, Fur an imaginary portrait of Deanne Arbus. I got to say it every time just because <laughs> I feel like we can't just say Fur. Fur, <laughs> an imaginary portrait of Deanne Arbus. That, uh, so Alan Arbus is played in that by the actor Ty Burrell. Uh, but Alan Arbus, who is Deanne Arbus's husband, is also, and I didn't put this together at all the alan arbus who we know if we're fans of mash as sydney the uh the therapist the psychologist the psych- <laughs> uh, psychiatrist who visits mash 4077 many times including being featured in the final episode which was i think still ranks as one of the most viewed tv shows of all time yeah tv episodes live of all time and then you turned me on to the fact that he was in the film Greaser's Palace. Yeah. That was directed by Robert Downey Sr. Yeah. And so all this time, this whole week, while I've been trying to get my mind around that, it's been being 
pretty well blown. And I have some things I want to say about that. But since this was your revelation, I want to, you know, so, uh, so do you know uh, Alan Arbus from Greaser's Palace or were you a MASH fan or when did you put this all together? I've never been able to watch MASH ever. That's a show that I cannot watch. There's something about the theme song that's so depressing that when I was a child, when it came on in syndication, it was like why I've also never really watched Cheers. I was just like, this is for grownups. I can't watch this. This is not for me. And so that I would never watch it because like this theme song was so sad. Like the, the same reason why I haven't watched Taxi because the theme song is just so sad. Oh, something about my three, this, like, like three of my favorite shows. <laughs> because it's a for half exactly hour show. Reason. You're telling love... me this half hour show is supposed to be funny, but then you have the most depressing theme song. And so when I was a kid, when I was like eight or nine, when these shows were on, the theme song would come on after Three's Company or whatever show I loved, and I'd be like, oh, I got to change the channel. This is not for kids. This is a grown up thing. I'm not going to understand what the show is. So it's still like in my brain as a grown up. I hear these theme songs and I'm like, oh, I think this is for grown ups. I can't watch this. Though I am a grown up now, I should be able to watch them. But it's like it's a weird, uh, you know, Pavlovian response to these this music. I, I like the Mesh movie, but, <laughs> but uh, I, so like looking up Alan Arbus. Because I because because I read as because I was I didn't I didn't know a lot about Dean Arbus I wanted to kind of know about her before watching this movie and so when it mentioned that her husband became an actor I was like oh I wonder if he became anyone of note that I would have recognized anything and then I saw the picture of him and I'm like wait a minute that's the star of Greaser's Palace like I I can turn to the right from my computer and look at the box on the shelf and there he is on the cover and then I'm like wait a minute that's directed by Robert Downey Jr.'s dad. Wait, so did Robert Downey Jr., when he signed on to do this, know that, like, he, like, this is a person he's definitely met as a kid? Like, so that, like that he's whole in thing the movie. Was, he's Robert in the Downey movie. Jr.'s, he's in the as movie. As a little kid, yeah. And then, and then Ellen Arbus shows up in other Downey Sr. movies. So it's like, it's clearly he was a part of that group that made these sort of. And for those of you who don't know, like, De- Robert Downey Sr., Robert Downey Jr.'s dad, was this like, amazing, brilliant, kind of outsider artist in New York in the 60s. His big uh, kind of outsider movie was Putney Swope, which is this brilliant satire. And then he just kept making these sort of weird, interesting, sort of like a kind of a version of an experimental art film, but like kind of also zany and funny. So they don't come off as too pretentious. They're really good. They, de- I definitely recommend checking any of them out. But yeah, the fact that Helen Arbus is the star of Grease's Palace and Robert Downey Jr. is a kid in it. And then he's in this movie as a character. It's just, it's such a weird <laughs> thing that I'm sure it was totally an accident that they, all these, you know, that he ended up in this movie and that was the, you know, it's like, yeah. Accident. Accident? You saying that to Mr. Synchronicity here? Come on. <laughs> you know, accidents. This is all, this is what happens. Again, this, I think that's also just sort of the byproduct of what I was talking about before, that sort of kismet of you have the right artist working with the right project and then Kidman coming in as sort of like surprisingly being the right actor at that point to then build this whole thing around and of course, it just like at that point, you have this flow of synchronicity plus Hollywood money to, you know, grease the wheels of that particular palace. Ha ha ha. And <laughs> uh, and yeah, so then synchronicities start to appear. You know, I think that Dr. Sidney Friedman might have uh, m- might love to get you on the couch and figure out what it is about this sad music that makes you <laughs> an adulthood that turns you off. You might, you know, 
you might find you you know wake up and realize that that chicken wasn't actually a chicken it was a baby <laughs> uh no uh that was it a little bit of inside humor for those millions of people who did watch <laughs> everyone but me <laughs> yeah no no uh and it did make me think of something else and this is a it's one of these these things when you start to research a film you love you might stumble across something that becomes a criticism that would never have been there if you hadn't done the research that you did because you loved the film you know it's sort of like that that sort of the Mr. Arcaden uh, <laughs> paradox. Like if you start to research someone, you change, you know, whatever. You you find out things you don't want to know. <laughs> anyway, uh, and one of the things that kind of bums me out about this film now is that Ty Burrell and uh, Nicole Kidman are very not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Maybe Ty Burrell is Jewish, but he's not Alan Arbus Jewish. And I just feel like it would be a... T- and S- Steve Shaneberg is Jewish. So And so is Jonathan Glazer. And there's... And films like Fur and Birth both capture a feeling of a New York kind of Jewishness that I had some friends who were... I have some friends who lived in that world and it's accurate it's like a non-jewish jewishness um so it's a weird thing to to mention or to to feel like i have to mention and it's it's not even really a criticism although cuz i can't imagine having the same response to it and maybe that's my own internalized anti-semitism mm. i can't even imagine watching this if ty burrell were alan arbus and if Nicole Kidman were, you know, played by Melanie Mayron, I just rewatched Girlfriends. Uh, so that's why I, I have or not rewatched. I just watched the film Girlfriends and I got kind of I thought, oh, that's I've been thinking about Melanie Mayron as a, you know, a great Jewish actress of the 70s who was very, you know, again, it wouldn't have worked in terms of casting. But my point is, would it have worked with the sterility that it portrays? I, I, what was that studio like with Alan Arbus as that photographer? He's not Ty Burrell. Yeah. He, you know, he's just a more interesting person than that character. So and, again, it's not, yeah, I don't, I don't, it doesn't mess with the film, but it messes with me. But you're not the only one to bring that up. Like in the reviews that I've read, a lot of people's complaint is that of like, how dare you cast the, this great Jewish artist as like this red haired, beautiful Australian actress. Like that's a few people have made that note. Um, who would like in two thousand six? Who would who? What Jewish actors would be playing Dan Arbus? Like, I don't know who were the popular ones. That, but do you remember? Like back then, like who would be? No, I mean you know, I don't like, know. I don't. I don't know if Catherine uh, Keener is Jewish. She probably isn't, but she re she sometimes gets cast as that. You know, Julia Louise Dreyfus, <laughs> um, Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, you know, I know. I I, I don't. This to... is the thing. I don't want to. I'm not quibbling with the casting. I think that Fur is. I don't want to say a perfect movie, but it is. It achieves a kind of perfection that every director should strive for, which is to have that moment when you get the opportunity to tell the story that you know you were born to tell, and all the resources align align for you to do it, and you do it. Yep. 
You know, it's like it's a thing with Michael Apted and Thunderheart and Incident at Oglala. And that's with Steve and this. So I don't quibble about any of it. It's just that in doing the research now, there's a part of my mind that wants to see the Arbus family story with actually. But Alan Arbus is dead. And, you know, I can't <laughs> I, you'd, you'd have to know them. And that's the problem that you get. You know, then you would have got the film that you didn't want to yeah. watch, and which so- was. Yeah. A, a biopic trying to tell the truth instead of the poetic, the artistic truth. And, to get and the thing to is, the, yeah. for the people that were sad that this movie wasn't that, you can still make that movie because this movie is not that at all. So like that movie yeah. can still be made. If you want to have the more straightforward Dean Arbus movie, no one's made that yet. So <laughs> you can do and, that. And it won't take anything yeah. from this movie. And this movie won't take anything from that movie because this, it couldn't be any more different than a movie right. like that. Um let me see, there's a couple of other interesting points. I listened to Actually, I would just say if you if you can listen to the director's commentary on it. Stephen has a very uh, soothing voice and he has a lot of interesting insights into he's very aware of the real story and it's fun to listen to him talk about like when she's walking down the hall and she's looking at all these photos in Lionel's apartment and there are photos that he knows are from people who were big influences on her. Mm -hmm. And so they wouldn't have been there, but they are there in her dream world. Yeah. And seeing the way that he subtly encodes these, I mean, it would be insulting to call them Easter eggs. It's more like, yes, it's encoding and it's, it's filling that world with yeah, again, like Deanne Arbus's dream. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Really, really great film. Great actress, great actors. Uh, and Steve Shaneberg, the, the director. Now, uh, we, didn't, we haven't talked about Secretary at all. I talked a little bit with Steve about it in the interview. Do you have, what are your thoughts on Secretary? I love that movie. It, it made for a very awkward first date when I first saw it. I took someone to it and it was our first date. And that was not maybe the right movie to see for the first, or maybe it was the really right movie to see for the first date. Was there a second date? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, yes, <laughs> and a third, and a fourth. So okay. I, guess, I guess it ended up work. I guess you know I'm wrong. Great first date movie. <laughs> but no, I really like that movie a lot. Like I, uh, that's one of those movies that. The fans of it are kind of ruin it, I think, like at least working at the video store, like the type of people that would come in and be really excited about that movie would make me not want to watch that movie or not like it. But because I've seen it and know that it's really good, uh, it's like the people that like Sons of Anarchy a lot or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Like, don't let them ruin the, the thing that is actually good. Um, yeah. But <laughs> it's, uh, I know, I think that movie's great. And I think just like this movie it's just like the two leads are so good in it and like it is difficult and it's about things that may be something you don't agree with or things that are different than your life but their relationship and the way they do it sells it and you're drawn into the world like it's when people complain about these movies and being like this is bad this is not how people are but you love the Sopranos or the or Goodfellas, like you're fine watching people like shoot each other. And that's not a world that you would actually be a part of either. It's kind of a contradiction. <laughs> I feel 
Um, yeah. yeah. But, but people are, you know, sex is, is different and pushes some very heavy buttons for many people in different ways, you know? So it's definitely a bold subject matter, just like this movie, just like the prom. I think like he, Schoenberg likes to, you know, push buttons, but not in a shitty way, not in a, I'm trying to be shocking way, but more in like, these buttons should be pushed. These things should be talked about in movies. Why not? Just because it makes you uncomfortable or it's different doesn't mean it shouldn't, these people shouldn't do that. And I really liked in the interview where he talked about that he's just writing these characters and then the characters kind of take over. And I totally get that. And maybe that's not a thing that non-artists understand. But that totally happens. Like that even happens with like painting. If it's like eventually you kind of get into the flow and you get kind of really into your right brain and it just sort of becomes its own, it kind of snowballs into its own thing. Like not that an artist should kind of take no responsibility for the things they make, but like, but that does happen, especially if you get two people in a room talking, like that's a writer exercise they teach you in college. Like think of two characters, get them talking. And then eventually you're just transcribing what they're saying. And that, and that's, that's how you can write. And that's what secretaries very much. uh, It's just like, yeah, these aren't people that maybe, you know, normally, or that you do, or maybe it is, but I love that it's there and it, it exists. Yeah. I feel like there was one other piece I wanted to ask you about. Oh, when I said I was going to interview Steve, you wanted me to ask about Aaron Wilson and about Dennis Johnson. And I was just curious if you have any relationship to the work of Aaron Cressida Wilson or Dennis Johnson before this. I mean, not Aaron Wilson, but Dennis Johnson. I think, I don't know if it's because of an Olympia thing, but like when Jesus's son came out, as a movie that was like the movie that everybody talked about and everybody wanted to see, you know? And like, that was something there's, there was just something about that movie that clicked with a lot of my friends and myself. I can't even remember when that movie came out somewhere in the early aughts. Um, and so that's why I was interested because it was really surprising to see that the student film that you were in, that he directed, that uh, Schoenberg directed was written by him. Uh, and it's funny in the interview that you didn't realize that until much later that at the time, was he like on the set at all? No. When you were making it? it just He just wrote the script and wasn't even a yeah. part of the production? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and and then I just watched, he, he wrote Hit Me based upon the Jim, Tom, uh, Jim Thompson story or novel uh, that Steve did as his first, I guess, real feature. And yeah, he's a, and they, they shot that in Tacoma. Oh, wow. So yeah, there's a whole Northwest connection and whether or not he knew it, I want, so I don't think Steve knew about my Olympia connection when he cast me in the prom. Yeah. But I feel like that's one of those, uh, the, the involvement of Dennis Johnson in the prom is, has always been one of those really weird sort of two, heavy to think about synchronicities for me uh, just because of sort of what I said in that interview. Like I love, you know, when you really fall for a writer, it's an investment. Like you really, it's not like liking a director. It's not like even liking a musician. Like when you like a writer, every book is like, it's a joy, but it's an investment and it's very intimate. And if it gets Mm -hmm. to the point where you really love that voice, it's, 
irreplaceable. It's like, it's the, you know, and you know, it's a, a commitment on their part. Not that mm-hmm. it isn't a commitment to make a movie or, or right or do any of these other things, but there's just something about that. And then that he's got a Northwest connection and all of that sort of like crept up on me. Um, it's one of those areas where I just get, I kind of get chills and then watching hit me and thinking about how that's all happening right in a line with P.T. Anderson's growth and with the same kind of actors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's just, uh, it makes me, it's it's so hard not to wish that Steve Shaneberg had a different career than he does because I'm so happy for the career he has and he is, it's just I, I want to see him get to make more movies. He's there's something and on a personal level not on a personal level like I would be I would get to be in them but on a personal level like I feel like all of his films are personal to me mm-hmm. in part because of my personal experience with him but I'd like to think that if I even if I didn't that would be there but because it is I can't subtract it it's like it's like doing the show with you and having you be from Olympia there's something about that that gives it this extra mm-hmm, there's some <laughs> it's like real I don't know what it, <laughs> organic indigenous uh whatever however you want to however you want to uh it's again it's like that kismet thing of Tyler like I was talking about with Steve and the Deanne Arbus story when people find themselves working with the people that they should be working with not because they orchestrated it that way but because that's the way things work when you're doing the right work uh-huh. which is what fur is ultimately about is about someone finding that if they follow, even following the weird path is like, or the weird path is the true path and it'll all work. And it doesn't, it's all going to work out, but you will, because things didn't work out for Deanne Arbus too much, but she did make some great <laughs> work. Um, anyway, have we, do you feel like we've covered this film? Yeah. What, can we talk about the prom for a second? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, cause, I, cause it was interesting to see like, so how I really liked it. I think honestly that it's maybe my favorite Shaneberg movie <laughs> out of the ones that I've seen because it kind of it has that kind of spooky indie feeling that I got like when I first saw like Sex Lies and Videotape or like there's just something about like the like again like somebody like it's really rare to see a young person like a college student or whatever age he was when he made that make something that seems so raw and so true and like really doing a very good job. Like that's hard to do in a movie, like make this movie that feels like I'm just sucked into this world so quickly. I just loved it. I thought it was great. And so like, how do how does one make a student film with all these famous people in it? Like Jennifer Jason Lee is like, she was a big star by the time that was made. Like, how do you, is this like, was this through a program? Like, how did this, do you know how it all felt yeah, together? Yeah. So it's, it's not just any student film. He was uh, one, he was a student at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. And every year, at least at the time, I don't know what the program's like now, but that year, three or five other directors out of a class of, you know, 25 to 50, maybe a hundred were chosen to make a feature film and they were given enough of a budget to do it. Plus they had a deal with 
a lot of agencies and the union to that you could do these films for free. So like I had a friend, I was going out with the Tuesday night from Nightmare on Elm Street for, I remember she was working on an AFI film around the same time that had James Earl Jones in it. And uh, so they worked, you know, you could work for free on this and get some sort of agency credit or something. It's just working with young directors who would go on to be this next generation of directors. For me, I don't know why James Earl Jones did it. I know why Jennifer Jason Lee did it because they were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And uh, why I did it was because I got to, because they invited me to. And it was, you know, it was just such a an interesting role. But uh, yeah, that's how he... That's how we got all those great people. And I think he had some connection to Mammoth World, which is how the J.T. Walsh, uh, J, uh, J. T. Walsh and Natalia Nagulich connections came in. But that might also be, have been through Jennifer because they were very much a couple at that time. What's what's it like being directed by somebody with a, on their first outing compared to someone who's made a bunch of movies already? Well, I know for well with with Steve just the attention the the attention that he was able to bring to it. Like I'd never worked on something where we rehearsed for weeks before. I would go over and hang out with him and Jennifer and just rehearse and talk about the film. And Something about, also, since everyone was working for free, there was just a lot less attitude in this weird way. I don't know. It was a very it was a very pure filmmaking experience. But I think it would have been a different thing if you're trying to make your first film and you don't have the support of the American Film Institute. And it was still stressful. Like, I'm watching. It's fun. It's fun because I'm watching in both Secretary, but particularly in Fur. I'm watching... Steve do camera moves that are so elegant and I know what he's going for because I watched him try to get people to do that on a crappy track in some (laughs) house somewhere and get so frustrated that he couldn't get a fucking push in (laughs) on some shot. And at the time, you know, there were these moments you just, I remember, you know, I remember all all the good times generally, but I remember the tense times specifically. And whenever I see a really beautiful, elegant, flowing push in or camera move in one of Steve's films, I just feel so happy for him, you know, because he's. (laughs) You did it, kid. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Well, it's not even just like you get to see so. And I love it, makes that, that frustrating moment from all that time before. And not frustrated at me, just watching him just get mad at something that. I didn't understand. And now I watch it. I'm like, well, of course, because you want this to do that. And they just couldn't. (laughs) And it's, it's interesting watching his two movies and and like this week and like knowing secretary, it's like, he, I feel like the world is wrong about him. Like he definitely is a, a unique filmmaker with a very unique perspective that is his own. But he's just not talked about in the same way as his peers. Like he, you talk about Hard Eight. Like he came up the same time as Tarantino and both Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson and all these people who came out of this sort of '90s indie uh, scene. But he just isn't part of the conversation, and he, he should be. Like all of his movies are what he wants to make, 
And it's just like, yeah, it's sad that he doesn't get to make, you know, the movies he wants to make right now. But I hope that we get to see more. But I think that I want people to kind of know his name and I want people to look at his whole body of work. And is the prom able? Can people watch that anywhere? Well, you know, someone might upload it to <laughs> Vimeo and put it on uh, on put a put a link to it on our website. And you know, if nobody was out there stopped that someone from doing it, <laughs> then you could go there and you could see it, and it might be there. That's uh. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna. That's all I'm gonna say. That's I want to see a nice like Criterion of Secretary in like five years uh, with and the put, prom on and put as the prom a... as an extra because like when they put out uh, I think it was Election, they have the early film that Alexander Payne made that's on there and it's just great to see it's sort of like this hour long kind of college student film. It's just it's inspiring to see something that's clearly cheap. And, you know, like, not fancy looking, but well done. And it's just great to see that, like, that person can go from that to making a movie with Nicole Kidman within, you know, 15 years or whatever. So it's like, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's a good inspiration for young filmmakers to see, like, yeah, you can make this weird little thing and maybe no one saw it. But if you just keep at it and keep honing your craft, you too can direct Robert Downey Jr. in a hair, hairy suit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. And have you seen his film Rupture? Mm-mm, I really want to now, though. Like that looks. I'd never even heard of that. It's, That's the problem. I've never even heard of that movie. Why? It's I should have heard of that movie. And really odd. Really, I think you might. It might be more in your wheelhouse than mine. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I was really confused. The second time I was I watched it, I was confused in a different way. Um, but both were before I had my conversation <laughs> with Steve. So I'm thinking if I watch it, the. Uh, in light of what we discussed there, yeah, it might make a different kind of sense. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm glad you liked. I'm I'm glad you liked the prom. You know, oh, it's great. Uh, it was really good. Yeah. And I think that's a great idea for anyone who's out there who's consider. I think the Criterion Collection version of the uh, uh, release of of the of um, Secretary with the with the prom in there would be a you know I think it'd be a good thing. I, agree. I mean, if Nicole Kidman will let us, she doesn't you know because she's. She's got her own new film, The Prom, that's kind of ruining any chances for my little indie <laughs> student film with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Steve Shaneberg to ever see the light of day. You don't know. You don't know what kind of dastardly tricks she gets up to to maintain. Like how does like how does she maintain all this time? Killing the competition. I really want people to see Quiet. the prom because I mean, not just because it's good and you're good in it, but like I, Jennifer Jason Lee is my Nicole Kidman. Like she's my favorite actress and has always been my favorite actress. And it's a shame that other people who love her, like haven't seen this because she's great in it. She's amazing yeah. as always. And yeah. uh, I've really, yeah, I think people should definitely check it out wherever they may find it. Wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> to watch the prom. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.
Hello everyone, my name is Dennis Callow. I'm a photographer and a filmmaker out of Brooklyn, New York, and I'm here to tell you about my podcast, The Carrie Allen Picture Show. If you love films and you love filmmaking, then this is the show for you, because I talk to actors, actresses, writers, directors, comedians, anyone who's brave enough to go out and make a film, I talk to them. We talk about their experience making films, how movies shaped their lives, and made them want to go out and make their own. Tune in to The Carrie Allen Picture Show wherever you get your podcasts on Paper House Network. Seriously, Seriously, it's everywhere. It's anywhere you go. Just there's a subscribe button. Go do the subscribe. Go hit the subscribe. Go go ahead. I'll wait. Oh wait, I sh- shouldn't make you wait because you're you're here to listen to the show, right? You know, I I don't really have a a, a radio eight ball connection to this, but I do want to revel for a moment in the synchronicity of the double proms. That in the month that we are. Uh, exploring Nicole Kidman. Her newest film is a film called The Prom. And I've, you know, you know, I've had Fur, an imaginary portrait of Deanne Arbus on my list of films that I've wanted to do since I provided my first list to you back in August. True story. July, June. Yeah. So this has been like, for me, the reason to do Kidmania was to talk (laughs) about Fur. And not necessarily to talk about The Prom, but knowing that the prom is part of my particular insight to it. And so we're getting ready to do this. And at the very moment when that happens, there's this other film called the prom that makes discuss that makes discussing the prom so confusing that your dogs are going crazy. (laughs) There's a weird, this is the, these are the synchronicities that happen in my life. Uh, (laughs) Back in the 90s, my band, the previous, we put out a a single called Corduroy the same week that a band called Pearl Jam put out a song called Corduroy. We'd been working on it for two years. They'd probably been working on it for a month. Just happens, you know? It's not even a bad thing. It's like, uh, it's like, you're a Dudley Moore fan. You ever see the film Holy Moses? Oh, yeah. Great movie. (laughs) Yeah. It's like that. It's like you're just right next door to the Moses story. It's kind of exciting to be right next door to the Moses story, but it's only exciting for you. Nobody else can see it. Except now, Brian, you're inside of my the blast zone of my synchronicity, so you get to experience this. Has it been frustrating or confusing for you thinking about the prom, Stephen Shainberg's The Prom, and... The Prom, the new hit musical from uh, Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep and James Corden. Not at all. I, I can I can handle both at the same time. Really? <laughs> can you imagine pe- putting you know, popping in one and getting in getting the other? Yeah, it's like when it's like when uh, that other crash came out at the video store. A lot of people were were renting the wrong crash. But in my opinion, they were renting the better crash. So it's like the one that won Best Picture. Not as good as the people having sex with car crashes, David Cronenberg won. And that's just, I think that's good. I think it's good to mix it up like that. Any other films of, like where the, the they have the same title and it's confused you? Um, I'm trying to think if there's any. There was, what was it? I mean, I'm, it, I'm sure it happens all the time in porn. <laughs> I mean, who can tell the difference between Big Butts 3 and Big Butts 4? Come on. <laughs> There's certain movies where I think I saw it because of the title, and I realized 
that I haven't seen it. I was thinking of another movie that, and I kept like there was the Paul Walker movie, Running Scared. And then there's the other Running Scared with, who was it? Gregory Hines and Billy Gregory Crystal. Gregory Hines and right? Billy Crystal. Yeah. And so I thought I saw it, but I think I just recognized the title. And then when I watched the Paul Walker one, I was like, oh wait. I've never seen this movie at all. Like I just thought I did because of that similar title or something. I don't know. Um, you know, like, and this happens to Zach and I all the time. Like we're currently writing the thing that is called prisoners. And then there was that movie from 2011 with Jake Gyllenhaal called prisoners, but we thought of our title before we knew that movie existed. And our title is still the title we want. So it's sort of the thing of like, do we want to be another movie called prisoners to confuse people or, this people's attention span so short now that you know that they won't even remember something from you know two years ago <laughs> so it doesn't matter and you know like why not name your movie citizen kane now because then it just means more people will watch it maybe i'll just name it citizen kane and then more people will see it accidentally and maybe they'll keep watching it you never know so are you suggesting <laughs> that it's possible that that i should i i, I hear what you're saying i don't <laughs> You're like some sort of swami. You, you speak in riddles. But I think what you're saying is that rather than looking at the new Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep, James Corden musical, The Prom, as a threat to my little indie uh, <laughs> student film with Steve Shaneberg and Jennifer Jason Lee, I should see it as this sort of stealth marketing opportunity. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. It's actually helping that having people talk about the prom they're going to go look for the prom and they're going to maybe find well they might find this podcast because it'll be in the tags that, exactly you know, we talk about the prom we're going to be like oh i want to hear about the prom and they're going to be so disappointed because yeah. they think nicole kidman <laughs> the, prom. the prom oh i love that movie <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna really, we're really shaking it up. <laughs> oh, you know what? For those people, I just want to say Nicole Kidman's musical number is the sort of the the most Fosse esque musical number in it, and it's really great. I think it's right. called Zazz. Do it with Zazz. <laughs> sounds dumb, but it's 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 adorable. It's adorable. <laughs> so now for that, for the people who did that, they got there, and and if you enjoyed that, and if you enjoyed that moment of synchronicity, check out Radio Eight Ball. I had to, uh, usually we, I let you promote it, but I, yeah. that was a, a weird turn and I needed to, <laughs> to just handle that one myself. But let's talk about your other podcast, The Director's Wall, that you host with AJ Gonzalez, where you look at a filmmaker's filmography and uh, and right now you're doing Coppola. We're well, you're not right now. You're going, you're slacking on Coppola. You know, it's like he's such a good filmmaker that sometimes it takes a, a few months to ponder a movie of his. Like, I don't want to just jump into it. So we're... Taking a sweet time getting through a fairly small filmography <laughs> that Francis Coppola has, but uh, yeah, we're uh, we're get we're we're getting through it. It's happening. It's a uh, it's a pl- and AJ next month will be uh, on the show with you talking about the Oscars. So that's very exciting. Oh yeah. So look I'm, for that, I'm... people. That like he that's sort of yeah. like his wheelhouse. Like he is the only person I know who loves and is excited about the Oscars is on the level that he is at and great for him. <laughs> so we can bring that to this show. I think I'm going to make him feel comfortable. I'm going to go and grab some of your laugh, uh, your laugh <laughs> uh, recordings so just... and drop them in under when he, like there'll be a point when he says something and I'll drop it in and be like, Oh, and I, 
I relax my old buddies here. It can also work as nervous laughter if he's saying something inappropriate. You can just drop that in there to make it kind of cut the, you know, break the ice. Why yeah. would you set AJ up as someone who would say something inappropriate? <laughs> you never know. When people are in front of a microphone, it just happens he's, sometimes. He you know, seems those... pretty low-key and, yeah. no, and he's not chill. Inappropriate you know, ever. Very yeah. well, a thoughtful, well-educated young man. Uh, I don't I, if anyone's going to be inappropriate, it's me. That's that's my that's my brand. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's it's sort of at this point, I got to ask. A Shaneberg, I mean, we kind of did a little catch all of it, but you could do you could knock out a Shaneberg season, you know, the, what, the pace you do it like in a year. Oh, one every two months. Gosh, I hope it would be less than a year for him. He hasn't made that many movies. He got well. He's got five films. You know, you could do them. You know, like I said, would take you. Okay, you could do it in six months. Anyway, would you? Would you ever consider with the director's wall instead of taking on the biggies, just being like, hey, you know, it does take us a while to do these. Let's do a bunch of people who are. In that sort of Tim Robbins, Steve Shaneberg, like how many films does Jane Campion have? She can't have that many films. She has a bit. She, she's got like a 15, I think. 15? Okay. She's got, okay, so she's doing better, well, better or worse in terms of numbers, in terms of fitting into this particular box. You know, I mean, Miranda July is working at it. You know, again, I know they're still young in their careers, but there is something about like, it's been fun doing this appreciation of Steve and I'm thinking that there are probably a bunch of directors who are like that, who don't get to make films all the time, but made a run of really good ones and they're still active. And by celebrating them, you might, you know, light the fire. Is there anyone, whether it's Steve Shanberg, anyone else who you can think of who's like that you might like to campaign for? Uh, yeah, there's a few. There's a uh, there's a director I really like called Andrew Rapesky McKelleny, I think is how you say his name, and he's only directed like four features, but they like he is one of my favorite filmmakers, and nobody knows who the fuck he is. Nobody cares, <laughs> and he's brilliant, and he is great, and uh, I I would love to do like a director's wall on him. The problem is with the internet and people is like, would they? Li- would they listen to a podcast that's about somebody they don't know? Like the nice thing about Coppola is that everybody has seen the Godfather or with Shyamalan, everybody's seen a Shyamalan movie. So you can, um, you know, easily, you know, sign up to listen to an episode about a movie you haven't heard of by that person, but to pick a person that nobody knows, that's a, sadly it means less people listening to it, less people excited about it though. They should, though they should be. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm guilty of it myself. I'm guilty of it myself. Like, would you be podcasts. excited about an Andrew Rapasky McKelleny podcast? No, you don't know who he is. You wouldn't. No. You wouldn't. You wouldn't do it. I mean, I would so. because I am a loyal friend and I support my friends yeah. and I trust your your taste. But uh, but yeah. I am not everyone's like me. This is true. Yeah, <laughs> in that regard. Plus, I love film. I just I know I trust. But yeah, I would not. I would not seek it out. Yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't know now. To. I, unless except unless, I was doing research for a podcast. Why haven't you suggested a Andrew Rapasky? It's film? coming up. It's I want to do his film, A Chronicle of Corpses, which I'm like obsessed with. I love it, a lot. 
Um, and so I think that will definitely be something we do. Well, I think we'll get to that by the summertime is my guess. We're getting close. I feel it's, it's going to happen. I'm going to drop it very soon <laughs> when we're brainstorming future episodes. Oh, and just because this, this is the week we're recording this, the week that our episode for 10 came out, I just I re, was re-listening to what I needed to ask you. Have you watched What's Up Doc yet? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. Okay. <laughs> just gotta, you know, I got to keep the pressure on, Brian. It's... <laughs> It, it is will, someday. It is. There you will, you will you be will... the first to know. You'll be the first to know when I do. You'll get an excited or not excited text about my. my I'll get an excited have, text because like it will, it's great. I haven't watched it yet. I need. I know it's on my list. I mean, there's so many movies in this world. You know, it's hard to watch I know, everything I know, you want to watch. I know, like, I'm still watching I'm... stuff someone told me I should watch from ten years ago. Because I, I know, and I make is... you watch new films every time and all this stuff. But you're, you're taking a couple of weeks off here. You know, this is you know we we should prepare the audience. I'm very sorry to tell you this, but next week Brian's not going to be with us. He's going to be do, working on other things. No, you know, and he, and and you and Brian, you you, you invited a great uh, second to fill in for you, Zach Carlson. It's going to be fantastic to be yeah. talking with him. But I'm just saying you have a little bit extra time on your hands. <laughs> you know what? You're not doing me a favor. You're not doing <laughs> Barbara Strike. I'm doing you a favor. All you have to do is just tell me that there's an Emmanuel reference in What's Up, Doc, and I'll be watching it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You got to be working on Emmanuel, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Mm. Yep. Emmanuel. <laughs> Emmanuel, Emmanuel. It's like the trading places, trading places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's let's wrap up this show. For for folks who enjoy uh, The World is Wrong, you can find us at uh, www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. And every episode uh, of this show has a page dedicated to it there. And sometimes there are links to the films that we talk about, particularly if they are hard to find. And sometimes those videos have a password. And if you just look somewhere on that page around that uh, where the video is, you might even find the password. Then you can just type it right on in there and watch that film. And I would always recommend checking out the web page just on the off chance that uh, that's there. But we couldn't tell you if it was, but it might be. And you can find our Instagram posts at the world is wrong podcast. Brian handles most of those. And what else? Uh, oh, what are, we, what are we doing next? We're, I'm going to be talking about birth with Zach Carlson. So I recommend if you're going to check out that episode to watch birth i would also we're also going to be talking about sexy beast and under the skin uh, because of those are the other two films by jonathan glazer uh, he's another one who hasn't done that many but they're uh, all but great. he's the best he's great yeah yeah um okay well uh brian good luck with your writing we'll see you back in uh in a couple weeks and uh and we'll be looking forward to that. Any any last words to our listeners while you know who are going to be missing you? No, it's okay, friends. I'll be back to love movies that you hate. <laughs> you can all even where wherever he is, just know that Brian is out there loving movies you hate. And 
sending me info about them on email so that I can check them out and learn to love them myself. Well, and uh, I don't know uh, where you are or what you're doing, but I am pretty sure that wherever you are out there, the world is wrong and it's probably wrong about you. You are such a bad girl. <laughs> oh, that's my tit, darling. Let me show you. Oh. Like him? Lionel's just the greatest, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. Every day for breakfast there's a dish of scrambled stars. For lunching, you'll be munching rainbow candy bars. You'll be living a la mode on Jupiter or Mars. On a dreamer's holiday. Sing it. <laughs> Make it a long vacation. Time there is plenty of. You need no reservation. Just bring along the one you love. Take me. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, huh? why did you drop the key down? You looked like you needed to come up to my place. <laughs> 